Ha ha! Ha ha! Perhaps the ability for your silicon-based biologies to quickly adapt to all sorts of hostile environments is actually considerably undermined by the sclerotic bureaucracy that actually runs your imperial war machine. Yeah, your Heinleinian libertarian starship troopers can't really do a lot against the avian species of communist mathematicians whose utopian society is vaguely modelled on the novels of Ian M. Banks, Ursula Le Guin, Kim Stanley Robinson, and well, at least I think it was that ornithology magazine that I stole from the doctors. Flee, flee from all our oddly feathery peace dreadnoughts and their transparently Orwellian names. Ha! Who's on the crazy rice now? On second thoughts, maybe we could just share the galaxy together. God, triple fuck bollocks. What the... Why would anyone... Who even rings people on the phone anymore? You have called the secret headquarters of philosophy can ruin your life. If you would like a t-shirt with our motto, dialectical in the streets, dialectical between the sheets. The main point is that it's dialectical. Press 1. If you would like your life ruined, please press number 2. If you would like an historical phenomenological explanation of how you started to think about life as a consumer good that you owned and needed to develop to increase its value, press 3. For more organic forms of ruination, please hang up and look out the window at the impending zombie apocalypse. Hello. Hey, arsehole. Pick up the goddamn phone, you malingering bastard. (sighs) Fans. Oh, hey, hello, perfectly representative and only mildly vexatious podcast listener who definitely passes the Turing test and is very much an autonomous person in her own right and not merely a transparently artificial digital straw acquaintance. Yeah, how, how, how can I help you? Where have you been? Where the fuck is season two? Huh? Uh, you know, it's, it's coming. Like democracy and, and justice and other late... Derrida things that come from confusing the messianic for an infinitely deferred eschaton. I've been busy. I've been doing, well, not really doing, but, you know, being, not exactly, but, you know. Not fucking good enough. We want Roth. Well, yes, as it happens, I did record this really interesting conversation months ago with our set out Roth, but then, you know, that whole awful... Uh, add more bang to ideal whimpering capitalism as a cultic religion without dogma which has no feast days end of year thing in force without signification fetishistically disavowed festival whatever happened and my decrepit and yet strangely fubby body got all mucusy which it still is you also no one gives a fuck why did you just stop in the terrible darkness of late 2016 2017 if ever so-called philosophy was going to say something useful Wouldn't it be now? I look around and I see unbelievable brutality, murder, rapine, poverty, violence, immiseration so consistently distributed such that it can be mapped demographically, statistically, geographically, a growing calcification of injustice defended by the supine sophists of capital. We are on the cusp of committing planetary suicide via the management conference TED Talk. It's going full children of men, the banalization of horror, The world of detention centers and barbed wire, protecting nothing, signifying less. The capitalist realist absence of the future, the state of exception having become the norm. Well, yeah, exactly. 
but wasn't that the general trajectory prior to the end of last year? Sure. And how is that supposed to make me or anyone feel better? Well, I mean, it's not. We do, after all, live in a time of the return of actual, no, this isn't the least bit hyperbolic, slavery two centuries after Toussaint Louverture, the protracted and ever-worsening immiseration of billions of people that you mentioned before, of the moribundity of parliamentary democracy finally fully denuding itself as an almost entirely farcical, more or less spectacular liturgy designed to cover the circuit between the centrifugal or dissolving operations of government by planetary casino dangerously supplemented by the grotesque excrescence of state security apparatuses which grow ever fatter on the very spiraling chaos which provides their raison d'etre. Even when their growth and extension to all domains of life exacerbates rather than ameliorates the very thing against which they are supposed to serve as a prophylactic. Well, even the citizens of nations who have escaped the horrors of the periphery of the world order through their vast expropriation and protection of wealth have systems of government that have spent at least two decades offering an increasingly distrusting, discontent, and alienated population a choice between more or less well-mannered technocratic servants of a rapacious global oligarchy to the point that said citizenry will now rally in the name of anything that smacks of change and or the cessation of change to the point that the petulant, unconvincingly reanimated corpse of a senile narcissistic billionaire with a living hairpiece can today become a popular symbol of authentic humanity, with the result that we now have more than one nuclear-armed child emperor who, striding across the world like a swastika emblazoned Lego colossus, is one tantrum away from ushering in the kind of total catastrophe for which we'd normally have to wait for solar extinction. We've created a system that hands out indelible psychological wounds and creeping despair, even to the children of the most privileged strata of the most privileged parts of the planet. The conditions for an increase in suicide, terrorism, emergent currents, nay, fashions of racism, misogyny. Now, it's true that some things are going okay. I mean, uh, television is pretty good now, and uh, neuroscience is doing some fairly amazing things. Also, um, in terms of construction and dissemination of images of ourselves, we've perhaps reached the apogee of humanity's capacity for ingenuity and creativity. How is that not an argument for exactly what you are denying it's an argument for? Well, we're also at the point where there's a zone of indistinction being created by the PR rhetoric of the HR departments of major corporations and the discourse of cultural studies. <laughs> And there are ethics committees to do all the ethics. I mean, sure, it's not exactly a ruthless critique of all existing conditions that might culminate in new forms of thinking and acting that could prepare the way for genuine, universalist, radically egalitarian project. But don't we still have that, you know, the project to universalize a Californian campus etiquette as a kind of unified field theory master discourse of all political struggle. I mean, it's not just any campus etiquette. Hollywood's in Los Angeles, which is in California, so, you know, there's some really nice campuses and beaches and stuff, apparently. Attractive people or something. There was once an idea that the fruits of human thought and human labor could be put ultimately into the service of humanity 
that we could organize our societies and indeed every society on that basis through cooperation and without attention to the identity predicates which had always been the obsession of bigots and reactionaries. The sign of the boot that wanted to cross humanity waving the flag of difference. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty certain that the way to keep the flame alive is to have two absurdly narrow armed camps calling each other fuckwads on the internet as representative of the sum total of possibilities of thought and activity. As long as there are right-wing moralists complaining about the lack of X value and blaming said lack on whichever vulnerable social group they feel like targeting at the moment, and as long as those people are met by liberal moralists complaining about the lack of people who say things that have the trademark of righteousness, and as long as both parties can call each other shitheads on Twitter, there's no reason to think that we are in the least bit fucked. Fascism was defeated by narcissistic moral auto-approbation before, and it will be so again. You're really lame when you're sarcastic, heavy-handed, you know? Also stupid and also grotesquely unfair. All true, but I suppose that's my serious point. My own individual shittiness, which obviously can't be understated, doesn't really have a lot of relevance to anyone beyond Calvinist Cthulhu. But in all seriousness, there is a chance here. We're at a crossroads. Uh, the Kairos, choose your preferred exhausted metaphor for the punctuation of time. But let's not pretend that we're not facing something like a rebirth of history. And for all the doubling down on every tepid, sterile piece of consensual blather that has brought us to this point, it's not hard to see the beginnings of something else. You can see the courage, the decency, the imagination, the indignation of people from every part of this groaning planet. Perhaps younger people especially asking for something else, asking for something other than the chance to spend years of their lives learning to repeat the tinned shibboleths of overpaid platitude mongers just for a chance of enough cash to jump on the anhedonic treadmill whose inevitable consequences on the psyche and the soma are so great that on the rare occasions that we get off it we'll desperately seek catatonia like it's the grail of a gnostic last man amidst the ruins of the last empire but if a time of reckoning is coming i think that we can still have hope in the fact that the perils of the situation are also maybe for the first time in a long time, allowing people to see the cracks in what's passed for reality for too long. And if there's one thing philosophy, which incidentally should never flatter itself that it can by itself storm winter palaces, change the world any more than it carries inherent virtue or bestows moral integrity, or worst of all, as if it could provide technology-like solutions to global problems. In fact, the ability to suggest uh, that one can do such things is the clear mark of management theory or cultural studies or any other discourse whose motor is the elevation by fiat of a particularly nebulous adjective into a, the pretense of a concept. Instead, if philosophy can do anything, it's to help break the calcified carapace that limits the perception of what is to simply what bears the mark of existing conditions according to the structure and the logic of said conditions. Thought can and has in the past probed at the inherited ways of thinking. We still do this. Our thought can remain attentive to the ways in which art, science, genuine politics and love can open onto everything in the universe that is larger than whatever dominant rhetorics pretending to be concepts have confined us. Sometimes thought can punch holes in all that would appear to condemn us to that eternal repetition, an exacerbation of the same that is the not-so-secret truth of the phantasmagoria of endless novelty that forms the glittering surface of, as Baji would say, 
our atonal world. But a world is ending, and it might end, as things tend to do, in fire and in blood. It's entirely possible, we must admit this, that the logic of the present will be extended to the point that we live to see the final replacement of the history of politics and the history of ideas with the paranoid constructions of an all-pervasive security apparatus which exacerbates rather than ameliorates the chaos of which it is so terrified. But the project to bring the energy, the creativity of human beings into the service of everyone indifferently and equally isn't over just because it's threatened, as it has been before, with extinction. Perhaps it's even just on the verge of waking from its sophistic slumber. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you're listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life, the only philosophy podcast that promises you weekly, monthly, or at any rate, uh, some form of regular ruination. With me in the studio today is Dr. John Rofe. Dr. Rofe is a vice-chancellor's postdoctoral fellow at the University of New South Wales. Uh, He is the author of Badges de Lourdes, with Adam Bartlett and uh, Justin Clemens, Lacan, Deleuze, Badir, a collection of aphorisms called Muttering for the Stake of Stars. And he has, I think, at the moment, three books, at least three books coming out, one on the films of Hal Hartley, uh, one on Gilles Deleuze's empiricism and subjectivity, and another long-awaited magnum opus, uh, which uh, will address the, every single book in, in Gilles Deleuze's corpus. Oh, and of course, I, I forgot he's also um, the author of a book called Abstract Market Theory, uh, an attempt at an imminent philosophy of the market. Dr. Rofe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Ah. An illustrious precursor. That you do, that you do. But it is, but it is a great honor um, to have you. I, I'm certain that many of our listeners would be uh, have been clamoring uh, for your presence for presence on the show considered it an egregious omission it's time to time to fix this so john um you know what the first question is going to be and i suspect your answer um will be a long one if honest one john john rove how did philosophy ruin your life I, uh, like Adam Barth before me, uh, mm-hmm. I tried not to think about the question too much, but <laughs> failed like, quite badly. And I've been telling people all week that I, I, I'm going to be posed this question. I asked to rehearse my answer, which is a disaster of its own. Uh, I'm also amused by the, uh, the can in your, the title of your blog, first mm. of all. It can ruin your life. I mm. feel like uh, if you're doing it right, let's say, or if, <laughs> if you engage in philosophy seriously, then there's no question that it will will not ruin your life. It, it certainly will. Uh, obviously, the word ruin is quite charged and it has a kind of playful, alluring element yes. to it. But uh, for me, I mean, I think it's fair to say I it, it's ruined every part of my life. <laughs> every part. The thing that I suppose that the, the title really addresses for me is this kind of presupposition or belief that people have that thinking is akin to spouting opinions or yes. having a conversation with somebody. Uh, it, uh, in contrast, thinking involves a kind of risk to oneself. Mm. 
in a, in a kind of everyday sense, I think, first of all, in that everything that you think is normal and appropriate and is habituated into your life is suddenly exposed for examination or critique. Yes. So everything that's normal to you can be, suddenly become abnormal or wrong or a- outright vulgar or <laughs> unjust mm. as well. Mm. So the moment that you properly engage in philosophy, these yourself comes up for examination and everything that composes it. Uh, that's at that kind of, let's say, relatively mundane sense. And I suppose later on we might get into the more kind of heavy <laughs> affiliation that really is between thinking and, and death. Yes. Ultimately. Yes. And um, the, the, the cost to one's, my life today is connected to the, to the thought of death as well. Perhaps we'll, we'll talk about that. So how has it ruined my life? I, it's made certain conversations impossible, <laughs> <laughs> certain kinds of conversations. It's, it's made my family life insufferably difficult. Oh, God. <laughs> we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> For the same reasons, you know, certain conversations become uh, impossible to have in a certain way. Mm. Certain questions are posed in a way that uh, really don't allow a, a truthful or meaningful answer once, once they've been problematized. Uh, classic ones like, you get asked at parties if you announce yourself to be a philosopher <laughs> for some foolish reason. Uh, it, does God exist? Yeah. What's the meaning of life? Yeah. The, the old classics, you yeah. know, the jukebox of kind of faux philosophical questions, they're posed like this, but uh, in posing them like that, there's literally no way of them being resolved in a meaningful fashion. No. Uh, so that kind of destroys your social life in a certain regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly does mine. Uh, in relationships, I mean, it, we could go through all of the miserable <laughs> spheres that compose my my cosmos. But the the bottom line is simply that because so many things get are able to be called into question, and indeed, I believe literally everything can be called into question, and not critiqued in the negative sense, but uh, cast in a certain kind of abstract light. Uh, it means that none of the givens of my contemporary life or my life before I started in on this disastrous route uh, are, are insulated from this kind of attention. And so uh, I become a problem to myself. Yes. Quite a very famous line. And, and indeed, <laughs> this, is, this is what I understand by how philosophy can ruin your life. It will make you a problem to yourself. Not just you, but everything else, but... Uh, it's the fact that you become a problem that is the most striking in the first instance, I think. Mm. Uh, uh, so many uh, lines of questions open up from your answer. So on the one hand, there's a part of me that I'm going to uh, repress and save to later mm-hmm. that thinks your, your objection to my use of the word can as opposed <laughs> to will has something to do with your... Um, uh, Deleuzean uh, denigration of the category of possibility, <laughs> uh, which we'll which we'll certainly uh, talk about. But I do I do see. I mean, one of the one of the reasons I think of you as a um, singularly appropriate person to be on this podcast, but also to answer this question, is that I think this question of of philosophy and what philosophy 
can do to one is is central to your over yes. and and comes out or like central as you obviously said to your your personal life having <laughs> having had the effect of ruination on all of these <laughs> different aspects but um, and so I, d- I do want at some point to ask you about uh, some of these ideas, which I, I know in your case are, are uh, heavily indebted to, to um, Gilles Deleuze. I-, I want to ask you questions about um, Deleuze's notion of, of um, the virtual in relation to problems and ideas mm. as problems and the status of problems, the image of thought, these kind of things. But before we, we get to that and, and you can duck... Um, you can answer with whatever level of biographical <laughs> degree you consider appropriate. But I, I'm wondering about your first encounters with philosophy and, and, and what became a problem for you. So if we follow, if we follow Deleuze in saying a, a, a formula that you uh, taught me that the perfect model for the philosopher is the uh, jealous lover yeah. confronted with the beloved's lies, yes. right? And that thought is always produced by an, an encounter. And you, I, you like to quote Deleuze in different repetitions saying that the um, n- we can't take anything about philosophy for granted. It's yes. goodwill, us having a natural tendency to uh, 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 to do, to practice it. In fact, everything begins with, with misophy, yes. with, with the, the hatred of, of, of reason, yes. or misology, sorry, is the hatred of reason, or, or the uh, misophy. Uh, mythology. Um, uh, you know, at, at later I want to ask you about that in more abstract terms. Mm. But for the moment, if we have a, a young mm. uh, John Rolfe, what was <laughs> what was the first philosophical encounter and the first time you thought of yourself as having a philosophical problem? How would you characterize that? That's in an excellent question. Yeah. Uh, my, I mean, my initiation to philosophy was, I think, in some ways, this is kind of reflective of a variety of things in my work was in, uh, as an undergrad in anthropology class. Huh. Uh, and the encounter was with the work of Foucault. Yes. Uh, I suppose the thing that I was most taken with, and I still find incredibly powerful and moving when I read Foucault's work, is, is a kind of uh, obstinate curiosity. A curiosity often has, a, has this kind of like dilettante-ish yes. cast that's yes. brought in for some maybe warranted attacks. Mm. You know, but... In Foucault, the, the, the curiosity is tied to an, an intransigence of thinking more profoundly. That it, to remain curious is to remain intransigent with respect to the norms of a certain... Well, our, our norms in general of looking at the world and thinking about it. Uh, and I found that immensely enlivening, inspiring, and uh, like it, was, it was such a positive experience. Hmm. Uh, and to, to this day, again, reading Foucault, I, I find nothing that I object to fundamentally because I sense in his work the whole time this kind of searching perspective. Mm. Uh, and this, this is when I was an undergraduate and I went through my the requisite Derridian phase when I <laughs> did my honours degree, which I, I do think is a requisite in a way. Uh, and then uh, essentially gathered force a force of enthusiasm, but also an arrogance that kind of attaches itself to being engaged in this kind of uh, critical, powerful way of looking and thinking. Uh, I, I sometimes think of it in terms of a, a bird of prey, with all the kind of Nietzschean overtones of this immense power and 
focus, singular focus, and uh, lack of uh, reflective awareness or judgment. This kind of like aggressive assertion. Uh, Nietzschean master. Very much so, yeah. The the, the feeling of power. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a genuine element to the experience of philosophy. There's no question. Uh, Let's just say, though, that at a a certain point I hit the wall (laughs) and because unlike eagles, we are prey to language. Certainly. And (laughs) all the things that are involved in that. Uh, Yeah, and so went through quite desperately bad depressive period and hmm. so it among other things revealed to me the other side of this kind of uh, powerful flight hmm. uh, and that is that uh, we are we are to use a unpopular word we are finite we are weak let's say in certain ways uh, and that the, the experience of doing philosophy is is too much in a way for the kind of things that we are as human beings yes and I, I think uh, it, it can sound like a trite Deleuzeism or Nietzscheanism, but it's something I lived and I would never want to cast it in terms of a kind of pious, piteous vision of what human beings or what thinking is capable of. No. But nevertheless, they come together, the, the power of thought, the power of philosophy and the kind of the how much in excess that is of individual thinkers yes so that that kind of gap or um uh dialectic is is central i think uh and you're right and this is really what's embedded in my was embedded in my previous answer about philosophy it it, yeah what 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 one is what, what i became capable of was at the same time a kind of a cost it's a very, very kind of... <laughs> I mean, it sounds quite trite, but, well, here I am to say that's, that's my experience of it. No, and, and I, I, I think I, I understand this. I, I, I think many of our listeners, I, I know I can attest to some of our experiences of, of, of that sense of, 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 of the power of thought and a kind of adolescent moment of identification with it before you realize that precisely because that is is so powerful you can't stand in the safety of of its sublime contemplation yes. and it brings out the the part of us that is that as well as kind of cartesian heroes as sort of the broken bird-like beings we are in in yes, the, the our right. subjectivity and so but when did the what was the first philosophical yes. problem that, that gripped you from this. Um, I took that from the Oprah angle, the question. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I wanted this <laughs> very much. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, the first philosophical problem... Oh, it's, I find it very difficult to answer that it's question. It's okay. Yeah. I think, I, mean, I think partly the problem is that I've become possessed by the problem I'm working on. Everything else seems like... Mm. Uh, like obvious now. Like writing abstract market theory was uh, terrifying and exhilarating because I didn't. It was a genuine construction. Yes. Pose the question: What is the market? And then try and build a philosophy. Uh, but now, looking back, it just seems quite obvious to me. You know? <laughs> but a, it's a very banal observation in many respects. Uh, but now, possessed by my the problems that currently concern me, these are the only problems, if you like. So when I look back, I now, I can't reconstruct the series of what gripped me because when I was 
the, the one that was gripped was a different person to me, you know? that makes absolutely sense to me it's it's like looking at old loves or or, or, or <laughs> something it, you you can you can remember the some uh intensity of feeling but you can't you can't um recapture said intensity yes, of feeling so right. it becomes you become a, a stranger to yourself oh, okay but in that case uh, yeah i think the, the question was probably phrased but i suppose at some stage you, you mentioned um uh, the encounter with foucault and and with uh, uh derrida I've, I've heard you mention before actually that that you think um uh, everyone must pass through a Derridian phase. This is part of a good apprenticeship yes. to philosophy. But at some point uh, in this trajectory, you, you obviously encounter um, Gilles Deleuze. And <laughs> what was what were your first encounters with him like? What, yeah. what struck you initially, or what captured you, or what um, confused you? What was it? That was... <laughs> ah, so many things confused <laughs> me. I, I the first book I ever picked up of his was. Uh, his little book on Kant. Yes, a fantastic Kant's book. Little, yeah, yeah, yeah. Little introduction mm. to Kant's overall system. Mm. Uh, I understood very little of it, but I yes. appreciated the the power of the abbreviated form. Uh, and I think honestly that, despite the voluminous nature of Deleuze's work, he's quite a very compact writer. He very rarely repeats himself. Yeah. Uh, and and even very difficult assertions are made. Uh, often without the requisite context to understand them in the first instance. Oh, yes. So you, you, you either have to know a, a number of other things or you have to be able to uh, go back and dig around and unearth mm. why, why he frames things in a certain way or says what he does. So that definitely had an impact on me. But the first book I read seriously was very little study on Spinoza, really a collation of texts. The practical Spinoza, philosophy. Practical yeah. philosophy. Just, I think now one of his rather minor books mm. uh, in that book we find these remarkable um, and I find them very moving very, uh, claims about the the true import of Spinoza is his unalloyed affiliation with joy or endorsement or hmm. the, the Deleuze says you know that people criticise Hegel will criticise Spinoza for not noticing or grasping the power of the negative. Yes. But this is Spinoza's greatness. Yes. Is to have rejected that or to like, let, whatever word, we could say foreclosed, but, uh, and, and in this, but not just to reject it in the abstract or let's say the, theoretical sense, but to reject every form in which negativity minimizes or brutalizes or mutilates life. Yes. Uh, all of the, the, the horrible, the worst things in human history, the identification that victims feel with their perpetrators, uh, he lists a number of things. But these are the things that Spinoza's philosophy is resolutely, uh, is, is rejects. It's might as well say it like that. And it's about endorsing this the active affirmative power that... And I felt I, I found that incredibly, uh, I would say, shocking even when I read it. I'm sure, because he he doesn't just like get rid of, you know, like the obvious bad things in the world that everyone can say. Well, there shouldn't be this kind of thing. But uh, as we know, I mean, Spinoza also denigrates or, or displaces hope. Things like hope. Yes. Things that one would consider a virtue, but for Spinoza, are already caught up in this. The machinations of the negative, uh, and as a result, uh, must be put to one side. 
you know, must be things that are overcome or surpassed. Uh, non-dialectically. I realise I'm using all this dialectical language, but yeah, <laughs> Spinoza is not, it's not a question of that, you know. And Deleuze, that book, reading that book, encountering that book, that was a m massive shock. And, and I found it, again, enlivening and, uh, and kind of fired me up yes. for more. And then from that point, I just kind of read back into Deleuze's work and and here we are today. <laughs> I've been doing the same thing. I'm trying to understand it. Before we, I ask you more about uh, Dolores, this this notion of of of, of joy in, in Spinoza, which I, I agree. I, I mean, I still think is I still think is is shocking and unusual in the history of philosophy to yes. to associate. Um, uh, philosophy with with joy. Uh, um, there is, uh, as I think Deleuze says, there there's really no parallel with that. Despite the fact that I think, given that we started on the theme of ruination, that you'd have to contrast it with with happiness mm. and and the banality of of yes. that theme, which you know the title philosophy can ruin your life is is very much against. But I think in in what grasped you there this this emphasis on joy but that was not about happiness optimism no. um you can will your way to success um <laughs> i i recall actually when you mentioned hope um an aphorism in um muttering for the sake of stars where you say something like that sorry it's always one always produces aphorisms by paraphrasing them but <laughs> something like uh you know um the greeks understood correctly that um that, the last item in Pandora's box was actually the worst of all of yes. the, the evils, far from a, a palliative, far right. from recompense for what the rest of the box. It was just it just consolidated the horror yes. of, of what was. So so this this attraction to, to joy is is nonetheless like you've never seemed to me a thinker, particularly in your aphoristic writings, of a kind of glib Optimism, a term I've always hated as not being a particularly useful philosophical category, but but of, of optimism or wanting philosophy to be as as people will often say to us at said parties that you mentioned, like yeah, but how can you be happy or what's the point of philosophy if it doesn't make you happy or so? So I, my sense is you you quite rigorously distinguish joy yes. in Spinoza from any of this, but how would how would you describe that yes. distinction? Yeah, I mean, uh, one way to begin answering the question is to. Uh, What's the point of life if not to be happy? The, the true answer to that question is another question. What's the point of, of, of human existence? Right. In a way. Because it, what, it, what it presupposes is so many things about almost, almost everything about what it is to exist as a human being, as a thinker, and so on. Uh, it's also a trite question in its own way, but <laughs> so many pre presuppositions are built into the, the, the ideal of happiness. Oh, I agree. Which is yeah. surely just one of the great kind of idea that in which so many things are sublimated in contemporary culture. Um, the difference, yeah, the difference ultimately is that happy, happiness we can ascribe to as an emotion, we can think of as an emotion, but joy is not an emotion. You know? No. It's not a possession of mine. It's a characteristic of certain ways of existing and, and acting. Uh, it, it gives these ways of acting and thinking in this sort of Deleuzean Spinoza sense uh, aff affirmative ways of thinking and acting give rise to joy, but the joy is yeah it's it's a an exposure to something quite inhuman. Uh, it doesn't feel like mine because it's not you know mm. it doesn't rise from my being as a response to my feeling good about what situation I've encountered. It's the let's say the affective correlate of of genuine acts of thinking and 
and uh, well, for now, given that we're talking about philosophy, genuine acts of thinking uh, engender it. It's it's their hallmark, their characteristic or signature at the affective level. I think. Yeah, at, at that level, it, it would seem, and this is something that strikes me as interesting about it, that it's not incompatible with even a certain existential malaise or, or misery or all of these other things yes. that were. Yeah, indeed, that, as, you, as you said, yeah, that's right. Uh, especially the aphorism muttering for the sake of stars is very pessimistic and very down, but mm. hard, very unnichean, really, in many respects. And yet, but yeah. not on Spinozist, I would right. say. And, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. The joy is found in the in the acts, the act of writing, the act of even in, in aphorisms of sometimes of, I think of asserting, of um, making a making a little phrase stand up. Yes, you know the, that's the moment of joy. Joy isn't it's not something you know, that one possesses and can wheel out or take photos of. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't respond to any of the, the to recognition. It's not something that's recognised, it's something that's experienced, and it's only experienced in these moments. Uh, and it's the true consolation of philosophy, I think. Yes. That, that's the only one. Even though, as a consolation from this scripture, it seems it seems imminent to the act of that's thought, right. not not this yeah, right. extra thing that right. you get, exactly like like right. you yeah. go through misery, but then you get this happy moment. Or it, it particularly feels at the antipodes of... Something I was I was talking to students of, of mine about in a form of just just how odd this fantasy around happiness and the good life is. I've pressed on this a number of uh, people I've discussing the topic of happiness with and success. Brought up this notion that at the end of one's life, you'll have this one moment just before death, just before <laughs> extinction, where you survey it in this kind of smug, yeah. kind of content way. And that, and just the strangeness of that ideal is something like I, I think you can't philosophize and not find that a very odd oh, uh, indeed. thing. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I mean, you know, the old the old idea. Socratic, really, that mm. philosophy is about learning how to die. Yes. But that doesn't mean, yeah, getting, I don't think, prepared for death so that the last few days are serene and you can yes. pass a right. No, no, it's, it's about uh, having death as a part of life in a certain way. Yes. All the time. Yes. You know, it's a co- cohabitation of a certain mode. Uh, and there are bad ways of it coexisting, and that, hence the connection between philosophy and psychoanalysis, let's say a common border, even if there's no common ground necessarily uh, rather than yeah this a rather absurd notion that you just pointed out that at the last moment you gain that the god's eye point of view <laughs> your life is re- laid out like a, a reel of film and mm. you can like survey each scene ludicrous in so many respects yeah yeah, yeah. yes so for, yeah and you as always you're right to point out the I often find this conversing with you, Brian, that you, you, you follow through on the idea that I've had and you say the thing that I've forgotten to say, or, which is the quite Spinoza's point. Joy is a consolation of philosophy, not as a consequence or a reward to be desired, mm. but rather the, the thing that comes with it. Yes. And yeah, so if I say it's the only consolation, we could also say that there are no consolations yes. in philosophy. None. Yes. Um, it is this abstract absolutely rigorous, absolutely para-authoritarian act or series of acts that that 
is has the hallmark of joy. Yes. Yes. No, that's that's a wonderful answer. I this this brings me to the, yeah, the way these reflections on philosophy persist in, in your work. And so I, I want to ask you, perhaps for, uh, I'll ask you a number of questions about um, your work, which was your um, doctoral thesis on, on Betty's Dillers. And I think um, in, this, this book was based, was, uh, as, as I say, your doctoral thesis. And I think one of the interesting things about uh, doctoral theses for people who've finished them, something something I do not know about, but um, but I do definitely know about the the extent to which a doctoral thesis can seem uh, infinite and formless and incate until something allows you to um, structure all that you've thought and reflected mm-hmm. into something like a thesis. And it seems to me, um, as someone gripped by a number of different. Philosophical problematics emerging from Deleuze and elsewhere in your life. It, it was, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but, but it seems to me that it was the encounter with Badji's book that, in a sense, enabled you to, to have a thesis to yes. sort of like, yes, like yes. To, to bring, because the, the book could look like a, and I think this would be a an, an complete mistake, but a long critical review of this little book of, of on, on Badiou and Deleuze in which you, you mention how wrong Badiou is on a number of, a number of points very very convincingly I, I have to say as someone who loves Badiou but it, it's never seemed to me that that was the point of the book so much as it was something on which you could hang a number of reflections on Deleuze that presumably you've been having for years Indeed, that's, I mean that's an excellent way of putting it I would also say that some of the reflections were not for years, but indeed, like, being confronted with Badu's book, I was forced to, like, say, oh, what the... I mean, that's not what I thought Deleuze says. Now I have to go back and look again. Right. So it was a, it was a more... I wouldn't agree with everything you said, except that it was a more immediate right than that. Uh, and that uh, it forced me to learn about Deleuze in, an, in a whole new way, confronting Badu's book. Uh, that's why I think... I've said this before, but the the only real philosophy in that book is the conclusion. Which yes, says everything that's gone before is in a certain respect irrelevant. Yes, because and, and in another way, like it's only because of Badu's book that we're forced back into this encounter with Deleuze. So that way, it's a proper book of philosophy. It's not some sort of snide Badu's book on Deleuze. I mean, yes, yes, it's not some sort of snide attack, but a, uh, a genuine uh, act of provocation in the best way. Even if, as as you just said, I think it's basically completely wrong. Mm. Uh, yes, you do affirm it, though, as as you say yes. in the conclusion, uh, um, precisely for its its philosophical import, even for for generating. It sounds very hegelian. Yeah, <laughs> for, for, for generating the, the book that you have in sure. fact written about it, that it could not have been done without without Badiou, and therefore it isn't just a sort of uh, uh, critical. Slap down. I don't think he liked no. that kind of moralizing no, notion no, no, no. Of, of judgment and, and, and critique in that sort of everyday sense as opposed to in a, a Kantian sense, which sure. I think is very um, important to you. But yeah. but yeah, okay. So with with Badiou, with Badiou as the as the spur, you you come you make these uh, very profound reflections on on the whole of Deleuze's corpus. I want to ask you about some of the. Um, 
concepts that you visit there. You talk about multiplicity, events, uh, subjects, um, virtual, actual, uh, many other things. I'd, I'd like to go through these with you. But before we do, um, at the heart of the book, it seems to me, is a, is a reflection on Deleuze's concept of philosophy. And I, I feel we can't say anything about these central concepts on, on the virtual ideas, these kind of things, without um, talking about this. Um, can you, you tell me how, for, for you, Deleuze sees philosophy and, mm. and what, what um, appeals to you in this? It's a, good, it's a good question, and one uh, it's a problematic I've been thinking about mm. a fair bit lately. Huh. Uh, and certainly in the wake of the writing the market book, Abstract Market Theory, where I had the experience of doing what he says philosophy is. And I, I've come to really feel quite strongly that there are things that are very true about his account of philosophy. So, I mean, uh, to summarise the rather well-known theses of what is philosophy, philosophy is a creative act. It creates concepts. Uh, concepts are... They interrupt cliches in thinking. Yes. So the, the goal is not to function as uh, representations of a true reality that lies outside of thought, but rather to uh, trouble thought itself in its cliched, socio-politically embedded forms. Mm. Uh, so it, it, there is a kind of fundamental alliance between philosophy and art and science with novelty and with creation. Uh, Ultimately, going back to Nietzsche, one, one, one should say, maybe, and then via the Bergson for Deleuze. That, all of that seems, in a way, so, uh, kind of banal. Because if you pick up any book of philosophy, that philosophers are always saying, ah, I've got this new idea that I want to tell you about. You know, car water or, you know, <laughs> Geist or whatever. But the, the truth is that... Um, it... it let me say something rather elliptical sure. because I can't quite I would say that What is Philosophy is rather bad book I think it's hmm. probably thought through but I think hmm. also it, it's hard to understand from the point of view of being in the middle of doing philosophy as they say at the very beginning of the book which Deleuze effectively wrote the introduction it's only at the end of your life in a certain way where you start asking what the hell have I been doing all my life yeah. 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 yeah and I that point of view still eludes me. Yes. But all I can say is that the experience of writing philosophy for me is the experience of creating concepts, but and more than that, to emphasize a further point, uh, to bring together components, which is part of the argument of what is philosophy, into concepts. A concept is not, if you like, a unified thing. It involves components that work together. Uh, and that, that, to me, is a very real experience. Now... I've taken this down a rather personal... Uh, no, no, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is, this is how Deleuze conceives of the act of philosophy. And it's a conception that only, it seems to me, occurs to him gradually. He first talks about philosophy as this kind of creative act of concept creation. <laughs> act of concept creation in response to something else. Yes. Uh, in the interviews after his book on Francis Bacon in 1981... It's not a book on about painting per se, but a book that's provoked by the encounter with Bacon's works. Yes. You would, you would never say the things that Deleuze says about Bacon, so he claims, if you hadn't encountered Bacon's works and been forced to think them, <laughs> if you like. 
Uh, and then at the end of the second cinema book, the very last page, he says, uh, it's time for us to... What, what have we been doing here? Mm. It's a book, two books on cinema. They're not books about cinema exactly. It's no. like they're like gazing at it from above and explaining what, why cinema is significant, as if it couldn't tell us anything, you know, as if we needed this external point of view. As if it were not already a thinking. Well, that's exactly, yeah, precisely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, precisely. Uh, no, indeed, it's that we're at, it's at the level of the interference of philosophy and cinema that com- concepts are created. Uh, and so this, this motif of interference really is what underlies, I think, his... I think philosophy, his, his work since like 66 or 67, all the way to the end, and it becomes more and more explicit as he goes along. Uh, and we get to the end of what is philosophy and we get this idea that, that philosophy always needs its non-philosophies. Yes. Art and science, but also a broader sense of what is unthought uh, and so on. So, <laughs> rather large extrapolation. But I agree with you that if we don't understand this sort of general sense of, let's say, constructivism in Deleuze, mm. it's very easy to think that what Deleuze is doing is rather weird. <laughs> and it is, it is weird, but it, it's weird in a different way than we might think if we came along expecting, uh, as Foucault says, a flashy Hegel. <laughs> as if Hegel wasn't flashy. Well, oh, indeed. indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So all the concepts that are dealt with in, in Bad Use Deleuze, the, a lot of them very kind of well-known terms. The virtual, yes, yes. Multiplicity, uh, memory, time, the eternal return, these things, uh, ri- can risk looking like a incoherent system. Uh, and also, as Bertrand Russell says about Leibniz, you know, that it, even if it's coherent, it, it's like a castle floating in midair. Yes. It doesn't come to bear on anything. Yes. It's like a, a fictional undertaking, mm. I say. Uh, but Deleuze's point is rather that in creating concepts, in, 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 in this sense, there is a fiction, there's an act of fabulation going on in philosophy. But it's not at the level of representations of reality. It's an attempt to directly engage with reality as it exists in our thinking. Yes. So that we could put it under the heading of a critique of representation. Yes. We could put it under the heading of rejecting the question, what does the book mean? Mm-hmm. Instead, ask, how does it work? Yes. Various ways in which Deleuze frames these things. It's you have. It's interesting when you speak of the concept of of of. Creation, and I, I understand why this um, is important to you, and, and I can I can see how um, profound and how how much this isn't just a sort of facile academic slogan in Deleuze's work or in yours. But but I I do want to ask you about the kind of misunderstandings of that that can flow from Deleuze, maybe another Deleuzean work. But I'm thinking, for instance, of a, an article you wrote for the fourth. Um, issue of the Speculations Journal, which was re-thinking um, the, the uh, sort of an overview looking back at what is living and dead in speculative realism. And in that article, you talk about uh, patronymy and and branding, right? Yes. And and the the kind of a kind of ugly entrepreneurism that's slipped into philosophy, right? Like to to 
claim that everything is novel, to claim uh, uh, to brand everything as new, to chase after the new thing as a, as a new brand. It seems to me that both you in that in that article and elsewhere, but also Deleuze and Guattari and what is philosophy are, are very aware of this this oh, kind absolutely. of. Um, if it weren't a Deleuzean word, I'd say I'd say a simulacrum yeah, of yeah, of, yeah. of creation and so forth. Do you? Ha- is it, maybe this is too hard a question, but but sort of on the surface of things, how would you distinguish uh, this this false concept of creation from what Deleuze is talking about? And maybe especially, maybe this also could be a, a hook. It seems to be another thing that's really important for Deleuze thinking about philosophy and for you thinking about philosophy is the category of the Kantian category of, of transcendental illusion. Yeah. That that maybe there are reasons we keep. Um, even maybe even when we're practicing philosophy appropriately, keep conceiving of it wrongly or yes. something like that, yes, or, or yes, superficially, yes. or as if it's about the goodwill of thought, or as if problems pre-exist and we're just responding to them or something. But yeah, so perhaps with reference to the category of transcendental illusion, could you say anything about the uh, the difference between the creation of concepts in a Deleuzean sense and yes. and novelty as as branding, entrepreneurial uh, uh, concept? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I mean actually. Very important, uh, and this is uh, I can say that the kind of the animus in Badiou's work on Deleuze is quite correct. <laughs> Deleuze is really a thinker of dispossession in a certain way. That w- when we create a concept, it's not uh, it's not like creating a product, yes, you know, or having a new idea for some product on the market. Yeah, like. yeah. No, no, it, it's something that it immediately connects us to what's beyond us, you know, and what we're not capable of mastering. It's not finitude per se. It is in a certain respect, but it's not about... In in a nutshell, Badiou is perfectly right to say that in Deleuze there is this absolutely abstract, austere thinking of reality. It's just, and it's that—that's the level at which creation takes place. It's rather kind of like prof, rather profound, if you like, or uh, very Andalusian word in many respects. It kind of like in the, in the register of the real. Yes. Concepts make a real difference. Uh, this is a bit. Of, there is a problem in this with Deleuze, I think, but the the idea that many let's pe- say people who read Deleuze, Deleuze scholars or Deleuzeists. Mm. Or whatever we want to call them, <laughs> is that they're, yeah, they're entirely operating within the framework of a, of a kind of creating products for the market. Uh, yeah, philosophy yeah. is marketing, as they say. And what is philosophy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and as a result, philosophy and creation become attributed to a, a founding subject who is creative. Yes, you know they are they are the creators. They're the ideas yes. people, as they say. Yeah, and they're ad men and, and That's so right, forth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and then there's this very strange um, use of the word creative now in, in the arts, right? The, the creatives. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like a theatre company, there's the creatives and then the administrators. Yes, yes. The creatives. That, I mean, that's very amusing to me. Uh, it, first of all, it, it does go against a kind of egalitarianism in Deleuze, which is that it's not, it doesn't, thinking doesn't arise from, you know, you being the creative one. It's, no. It's an, it's an effort. Yes. The work, you know, uh, travail mm. to create a concept. It's not some sort of like, you know, speculative hobby of the beautiful soul <laughs> or a marketing company. No. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the problem here is that it's not that marketing companies have taken over Deleuze and then academics have 
thought we'd better get on the bandwagon. Yeah. It's the other way around. Yes. People in, in, in universities have been sucked in by the rhetoric, understood on totally false basis. Uh, and as a result, it just churned out this huge stream of nonsense and uh, like really quite disgusting, empty hyperbole that has very little at all to do with Deleuze's work. But which would make good management slogans oh, or marketing slogans absolutely. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just Deleuze, of course. Oh, true. People, absolutely. Like, absolutely. Everybody else yeah. gets there. I, saw, I once went to a talk about that. Bad use uh, truth conditions as a model for entrepreneurship. What? The, the, the subjective trajectory of fidelity to an idea. Yeah. Jesus Christ. But that said, Deleuze is singularly the, I mean, he's the, he's the mainspring, the food, the, the most kind of return to source for these, this kind of uh, disgusting marketing version mm. of thought. Uh, why is I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah, there's no question. I think mm. the answer is just that he, it's partly to do with his very concise or elliptical, depending on how you want to look at it, style of writing that leaves itself open to equivocation. It's partly because he uses words that are, at least in our context, easily absorbed and deployed by these kinds of people. Uh, and it's also, I mean, it's true that the, the talk of affirmation and creation. Uh, buys into a more profound level, problematic level than merely people misunderstanding. And that that brings us to the the problem of transcendental Mm. illusion. Uh, You're right. I mean, I I think to me it's it's among the most important ideas of modern philosophy. Uh, It's it's an act of genius, Kant's creation of this category. Hmm. Uh, And it's the underpinning, as far as I'm concerned, of everything that comes after it uh, that grasps the fact that thought is thought dissimulates yes by its very nature yes and this is Kant but then Hegel and then all the way through to Freud and Lacan and Deleuze and many others that we could invoke yes transcendental illusion the the activity of thought that as Deleuze puts it in difference or repetition the ground is strangely bent <laughs> it's true that fundamentally reality is concerned with creation and dynamism but the ground itself the very nature of thinking also leans in the direction of endorsing all of our most retrograde habits and yes uh, attitudes of thinking and almost necessarily so right yes, like, or, that there are, or at least transcendentally so like there are, there are yeah, yeah yeah so at the, at the limit we have, I have to agree and say this there isn't any strict strict Avoidance of the problem. No, no, sure. Uh, and indeed, even Deleuze himself is is prey to this mm. as a pro- as a as a philosopher. Uh, I think this is the sense of the famous, infamous remark about Spinoza as the Christ of philosophy. He's the one that introduced the least possible transcendence. I say, and this means he was the one that was most vigilant with respect to the effects of the warping effects of transcendental illusion in thought. That's how one might have found mm. it, I think. Which is not to say he can escape transcendental no, no, illusion no. because it's transcendental That's illusion. Right. Right. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. Not, yeah, it's not something that's subject to escape mm. at all. Uh, yes, I, and yeah. It is at the level of thinking that it's the correlate of the notion of resultant moral in Nietzsche, I think. Hmm. They, they both play themselves out in a way, they're, they're obscured in their operation, if you like. 
And then there's only this kind of indeed transcendental thought that allows us access to uh, their structure and their mode of operation, if you like. Are you saying, sorry, I just want to follow that analogy. Are you saying that raisonnement is uh, analogous or, or maybe even a form of transcendental vision mm. in, by the way it, it uh, presents itself as morality, let's say, or as, as, as or, or, yeah, what, what is the, the well, correlation? It, what it does is it, it's in play all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there, is, there are no non-resentful ah, yeah, of right, right. It's just that, that most of the time it's not, we don't grasp it as this kind of fundamental unavoidable structure. No, on the contrary, I think I think especially people who've read Nietzsche and maybe even uh, Deleuze's Nietzsche, right, have this have this kind of raisonnement. You can read about it. You can you can sort right. of chuck it out That's with your right, with yeah. your other bad affects, right? Like, which again would make him sound very, you know, uh, this this leads to Deleuze's New Age management guru, right? Exactly. That, that's yes, that's exactly. where that comes from. Not recognizing that no, it's the transcendental right. is just a. It's just a. So I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go there. I'm going to evoke like it's. Um, like. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to invite this. Yes, you heard it first. Um, here on Philosophy Can Read Your Life. It's like the Thetans in Scientology, right? Like there are these, there are these dark, you know, alien beings that through some process or another you can, you can eject and so forth. Like, right, like when, you read the, right. when you read the book and then happy, happiness ensues. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there isn't a way to, deal, to do that. And. Uh, this connects up with so many things to me. The, hmm. Once, once those that pair of concepts is in play, it's a very powerful analytic framework, I think, and it's one that certainly Deleuze uses extensively throughout his work, even when he's not using those terms. And it's the kind of it's it's what leans towards psychoanalysis in Deleuze too, which hmm. obviously emphasizes much the same point that there are kind of constitutive structures that we're not in a position to dispense with because they're constitutive. Yeah. You know, uh, but yeah, so th- these are the problems that one could raise from Deleuze's point of view with respect to speculative realism uh, and the idea of the kind of innocent creation of new thoughts or a new, new realist framework that doesn't buy into the problems of the history of philosophy as if it was just a bunch of kind of morons. <laughs> they weren't smart enough to see what they were doing. You know. Yeah. Uh, find that it's like amusing and infuriating and offensive all at once. You know, to, to act as if Kant or Hegel could just be like dismissed with a two lines in the first chapter of a book or something without ever confronting them right, or something right. or something. Yeah. Like that, I mean, what's I think you want to, you want to put this to me. I mean, we're in, in conversation for a I thought that in the Kantian aftermath of someone like Price would say. So everyone wants to overcome Kantian dualisms. They want to, you know, they have a problem with the phenomenon numeral distinction. They have a problem with the thing in itself. But no one, and and maybe even yeah, certainly for for Hegel wants to do something like what speculative realists call speculation. Even you know, I think the the name is, and yet Hegel never makes the mistake of thinking, as I think you put it once, you can just you can sort of just leap back be behind Kant, right? Yes. Like and just just and and go back to the the innocence of of ah, just yes. Graham Harmon metaphysics or yeah. something. Yeah, this is the, the kind of um, the kind of like absolute like what's the, even the word? I would say I was gonna, about to say the joyful <laughs> renunciation of critique, but that's not what I mean at all. It's mm. just kind of like naive uh, 
passive-aggressive. Yes, passive-aggressive is the right word, yeah. No, no, we don't have to be critical. We need to be critical of critique. We need to just be innocent. You know, this is this is insanity. Uh, I, I think so, too. It's very fashionable insanity, though, from what I, in, especially in extra-philosophical disciplines. I've heard about things like surface reading and literary criticism and other yeah, kinds right, of yeah. weird outgrowths of object-oriented and ontology and the like. Yeah. It strangely reminds me of, uh, of um, fashion design. Yeah. <laughs> Where the, the fundamental kind of principle of distinction is a kind of, is, is, is a kind of fashion that shifts. Yes. This is in, this is out. Uh, and, and yeah, critiques out now. Uh, yeah. When someone corrects something, you know, the responses are always uh, either... No, what is that? Or, or that's very chic. That's very chic. You know, the the critique is still operative, but it kind of operates to rule the boundary between what is genuine speculative realism, what is old fashioned. Yes, it's just like a fashion designer would do. You know, we can't have that plaid that was last year. <laughs> it's incredibly. Um, and so, what 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 are they missing? They're missing transcendental illusion mm. as a problem, but un, unavoidable problematic. Right? Yes. Uh, and that's like, yeah, you can give all the time in the world to these things. And some of them, may assume in particular, are truly remarkable philosophers. I, I think so too, yeah. But you, without, without attending to this problematic, I think it, it's just, at the very least, very, very, very easy to become immensely trite and uh, yes. shallow and also co-opt or voluntarily give yourself over to the kind of marketing of your philosophy. Yeah, most most definitely, yeah. Okay, this, this really... I, I, I want to ask you some, I suppose, metaphysical questions about the, about, about Padilla's Deleuze, and I thought, I thought we'd start with maybe this, um, this notion of the, of the university of being from um, uh, mentioned indifference repetition, um, referred to Don Scotus, Badiou makes it Central, you say in a in a book that says you know for all Deleuze's talk of multiplicity, and we know yeah in multiplicity as as you say in the book he's he's referring to to uh, Riemann. It's trying to get over the one many dyad, although most people don't really understand that. It's just kind of manyness is a good thing, but Deleuze, Deleuze has this reputation of like the thinker manyness is good, and Badiou shocks everyone by saying you know Deleuze. Um, uh, with with actually the famous sentence on on the clamor on the clamor of being yes. that is is a thinker of the one and uh, and everything comes down to the although as you also point out in Badi's book also strangely accuses Deleuze of being a thinker of the of the two yeah. as well as being even though it's problematic that he's a thinker of the one um, so university of being being is is said equally of all things like against. The classic Aristotelian formulation being as being as said in is is said in many ways. How, how how do you think this works in Deleuze? What what is the university of being actually about, and how does Badiou screw it up? Yes, uh, it, it's yeah, it, it's only a term that Deleuze uses in difference or yes. and in the logic of sense hereafter, uh, in more or less the same sense. Uh, it, there is a re- there's a way in which Badiou's assertion is perfectly unremarkable. Yeah. You know, it's true that Deleuze is a thinker of the one, but only in a negative sense. What he, what he wants to do is, by affirming multiplicity as such, an irreducible multiplicity, I mean, he even calls it difference repetition, the insubordinate multiple. <laughs> That's the title he uses at one point. Uh, he's trying to rule out any advertation to tra- transcendence, adversion to a tra- mm. transcendence, to a... Uh, another one 
if you like, if I can put it like that. Yes. Um, but if that was simply the point, then this is indeed what Deleuze is saying, but Badiou draws a series of consequences by insisting on the one as a kind of fundamental uh, thing or you know, as a kind of quidditative status in Badiou's reading, I think. If we go to Deleuze, though, what, what, what do we find? I mean, he does say that the, a single voice raises the clamour of being. But then on the very next page he says, you know, the most important thing about university is not that a single voice raises the clamour of being, but that that of which it is said, that of which it is said, is said of difference. Yeah. Or the multiple. So that's the fundamental point. There is a unity proper to multiplicity. What is that? And here we're in the, the, the most difficult and the most like extreme moment of Deleuze's metaphysics. Hmm. The claim that there can be a form of common being, if you like, for want of a better term, that doesn't involve a unified being. And it goes under the, a number of names. One is disjunctive synthesis. Yes. The, the being together of what is different. You know, differences related to differences through differences. Hmm. Uh, and the other is the, the yeah is the university argument. He, the term is taken from Dunscotus, but clearly there's not Dunscotus would not agree with this way of framing. So, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> aside from you know wanting to keep his head on his shoulders, um, he 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 got in enough trouble. Yeah, <laughs> he certainly around. did. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's also the side, of course, of one of, Del- of Deleuze's only criticisms of Spinoza. Mm. There are only two, and they're both indifferent to repetition. And the most important one is there's still a priority of a unified substance with respect to the modes. It's a one-way relationship. And that, that's, that by itself is enough of a signal, I think, that Badiou's way of framing the problematic is, is a wrong one. Mm. So what does the University of Being really tell us? It tells us for Deleuze, negatively, there is no transcendence or other unified being. Mm-hmm. And it says that there isn't anything... That differences or multiplicity is the end of the examination of the question of ontology. That's why he begins the passage by saying there has only ever been a single proposition, ontological proposition. It's only been a, ever been a single ontological proposition. Being is univocal. So you can say that Deleuze has no ontology in a certain respect because well, that's it. It's just that one assertion that is a, an absolute extreme boundary. Mm-hmm. rules out any return of any kind of unity. Uh, by affirming the unity of the multiple, quad multiple, if you like. It, it's extremely difficult to grasp because all of our ways of conceiving of things are the function to unify or, you know, yes. gather. Yes. Yeah. As bad you of all people knows. I mean, this exactly. is this yeah. is what's interesting. I mean, the way you put it just then, I mean, it seems like Deleuze, in speaking of the university of being, is doing something... Well, at least is addressing a problematic similar to what Badiou's yes. doing in being an event when he's trying to to um, talk about inconsistent multiplicity yes. and and then and then uh, as opposed to the the presentation of being as as unified by the by the count, but instead, and I feel Badiou's characterization as much outrage as it caused by um, amongst Deleuzeans. Uh, I have a sense Badiou's characterization is not. Mm. It's something not only typical to him mm. uh, or to uh, critics of Deleuze, but you might have other readers of Deleuze sympathetic to him who yeah. do see 
in his reading of Spinoza something like I think what you would call and what Deleuze calls in expressionism and philosophy an, uh, an emanationist sure. vision, right? That, that this is this is what you object to a lot in the first yes. part of the book. That that Badi has this vision of the and and one could read Spinoza again wrongly, yeah, but yeah. like this, as in there's a there's a, a one or it's Spinoza's substance. It's beyond being. So everything is a is an emanation of yes. the the one thing that is really real, and therefore the being of the the modes yes. or, or the the individuated things is is sort of. Um, chimerical or, or yes. something like that. I mean, it sounds like what Hegel said of Spinoza yeah, as, as well, but, so, yeah. but so you, so you get a kind of, um, rep, like Hegel, what Hegel says of Spinoza in its unfairness recalls what Badiou says sure. about Deleuze. But yeah, what do you think is going on there with, uh, I mean, not to, not to ask you to sort of psychologize Badiou, but it, it's just, it's interesting to me that you yeah. have this, this project of, you know, can you think, um, multiplicity without manyness without, Sorry, multiplicity itself without oneness, Badge would say, or Deleuze would say multiplicity without the one many dyad, beyond yes, the one yes, many yes. dyad, or, or so forth. So this, they seem to come together on this, they seem to diverge. How yes. do you see that those convergences and divergences? Mm. Well, first of all, we can observe that their methods are very different. Yeah. Badiou's opening decision in being the man is the equation of being in mathematics. Oh, I told you. I told you. I hated too the, the terrible Pythagorean right. reading of Badiou. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Dear listeners, laughs> yes, ontology and mathematics, by deciding on their identity, yeah. it kind of frames everything that's going to come afterwards. Deleuze doesn't have an opening decision of that kind. And I, that, it's part of the reason why mathematics has such an obscure let's say, no, let's just say obscure place in difference or repetition mm. in its construction. So methodologically, we're dealing with a very different situation. In, to be hackneyed and Deleuze, in difference or repetition does start in the middle. Yes. You read the introduction and it's already talking about repetition and you don't know what he's talking about. You yes. Know? I've heard you say the book is ordered, oh, like it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You don't get anything from the introduction about what's going to happen. In the <laughs> you know. Anyway, uh, that really is to elide the, the question, which is a really good one. What, what is it that precisely leads to the two ways of framing the issue? Mm. Ultimately, again, it does, for Badger, it does boil down to his way of framing not just ontological questions as mathematical ones, but as framing mathematics in terms of this kind of materialist uh, organization of meaningless marks, mm. if you like. Uh, and, and particularly zero, you know. The, or the, the null set. The in, null set, in, in, yes, three, yeah, yes. Yeah. The, the, but the written mark. Yes, yes, so but the mark of it. Yes, yeah. yes, that's very important, yeah. And, and so that, that's as far back as you can go. In Deleuze, because he has this Kantian framework, we're, we're engaged in a transcendental deduction. You know, one that turns out at the end of the book to be something that we engage in spontaneously every time we're forced to think. We engage in a kind of transcendental deduction. That's an amazing idea, by the way. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, if yeah. you ask, he's definitely got a Kantian framework. And if you ask yourself, how, could you reframe the book in terms of a transcendental deduction? You could. And once, but once you've done that, you just, you've just described the process of thinking or, and <laughs> the individuation of thought you know, at the same time. We encounter a problem. Uh, the problem we don't encounter ideally, but materially, in mm. the form of a material shock of some kind, mm -hmm. uh, in, intensive element in our encounter with the world and that forces us he says it lights the fuse 
we pass through the faculties until we're confronted with the problem in thought. Uh, and then we respond by changing what we are, by modifying ourselves. Uh, it, and that's true of someone, an undergrad confronting Foucault for the first time, as it is, you know, as Dula says, learning how to swim. Yes. Or, you know, we, we never know which, what, what encounter will force someone to love Latin or become a philosopher, he says. That's right. So the, the, in a very Hegelian way, you know, difference repetition tells the tale of how Deleuze could have written difference repetition. Yes. Uh, and it has the transcendental structure. So that, that really is, to me, the distinguishing feature. And it's, it's what leads answer. Deleuze yeah. to, to be able to make such a strong claim about difference and at the same time point out that we never encounter it in like sensible reality. Yes. You know, and and it, to me, it totally diffuses this ridiculous line of critique from Badiou and Zizek that differences are just what there are. Well, no, that's not true. What there are is is, is diversity. Yes. Not difference. It would be it would be true of a certain their critique would be true of a certain non Deleuzean use of the term in right. in identity politics oh, or something or something yeah. like that. But it's absolutely not Deleuze's right. concept. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's it's ridiculous to impute this to Deleuze. Yeah, even though yeah, I think this is yet another case where where it's it's Deleuze fans as much as Deleuze critics who have yes. imputed this to Deleuze. Very true. But your last answer um, in, in, intrigued me for um, so I, th- I thought you gave a, a really excellent answer. In, in contrasting their methods of the kind of axiomatic yes. method of Badiou versus the quasi-transcendental of, of, of Deleuze or even more, uh, even even kind of Hegelian-sounding, you know, start in the middle. Hegel so, also has things about swimming yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and the fact you can't, you can't have a sort of foundation would, also wouldn't like axiomatics, doesn't, yeah, doesn't yeah. like the idea of an axiomatic. Yeah. Um, but so this raises uh, two questions for me, both of which you, you address in the book. So one is about... Um, especially because I know you have a, an ongoing interest in the philosophy of mathematics, yeah. like this very fraught question of, of, of Deleuze's mathematics. Um, both, uh, you, there's, this, there's this great paper on, on uh, by Daniel Smith in mm. um, uh, the book on Bed, Horwood's edited collection on Bed, You Think Again on Deleuze and, and the tradition of mixed mathematics. But but because that's a bit of a, a rabbit hole, um, <laughs> I'm thinking maybe we can I can restrict that First question to the to the role of the of the calculus in difference yeah. repetition, which I think has mystified um, many a reader, yeah, which you talk about uh, via uh, Leibniz and and Maimon and so forth. But I, I feel and sorry to pile these questions on each other, but I feel I also can't ask this question without bringing up the question of the virtual, which I mm. think you've already mentioned at the level of. Um, the virtual is so many things in Deleuze, so many things in this book. So, so for the moment, let's just restrict. It. Maybe we're not. I, I, I'll take back the word virtual and say and say <laughs> the the problematic of Deleuze's variation of the problematic of the idea yes. in in Kant's, the, which I think you've already you already mentioned in your in yes. your sort of previous answer about the problem. So, um, uh, Deleuze on mathematics and and the status of the of the idea as problem yes, in the Kantian idea as problem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let's let's take the second half first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Deleuze. Excuse me. When he, in chapter four of difference repetition, where the virtual is kind of framed in its most kind of thorough way, he begins by noting that Kant already identifies these two things. You know that the idea is problematic in Kant. It's a problem for which there isn't a solution. Mm. Now, all that Deleuze really does, in a way, is follow a kind of trajectory that goes from Kant through 
Solomon Maimon, who you just mentioned, uh, as a way of kind of grasping this in a more concrete and a more general way, which is to say, a better way to put it would be to grasp the identification of the problem and the idea in a way that isn't caught within the particular Kantian framework with respect to the thing in itself. Mm-hmm. In one of Maimon's, Maimon's critiques of Kant, many of them turn around the fact that distinctions that Kant's made are not well-founded. Yes. Distinction between the understanding and sensibility, between the, the in itself and the for us, they're not well-founded distinctions. Maimon effectively collapses all of them mm. uh, and, and insists on the idea that the ideas are problems in Kant as they are in the sense that, to use the obvious example, the idea of the totality of the world is a problem for science because it provides a kind of orientation point that scientific endeavour can work towards from various discrete localities with an idea of a whole that can orient the work and draw these various parts together. Even though you never encounter it it, as an object of experience. It's just like the horizon. Yeah. So Deleuze follows, takes my mom on board and really there's very much in Difference or Repetition that's Maimonian in inspiration. It's a very important influence on Deleuze. Uh, and then Deleuze just just cuts off the theological uh, theological debt that Maimon has. Uh, he is basically kind of Spinoza's study of God and cuts off the, the reference to un- unity in Maimon, unity of the faculties. Maimon, there's only one. One, like Spinoza's God, there's this one faculty of one mind in which we are all finite and therefore uncomprehending parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and gets rid of the idea that, yeah, this is one, there's only one faculty of thought, the understanding. So what we really get then is the, the sense that uh, ideas exist as problems. They have a reality that's proper to problems per se. And that when we encounter a problem, various faculties come into play in a discordant or disharmonious fashion and kind of jostle with each other and, and push each other around and engender shifts in thinking. So a certain taste can make memory, be forced memory to act in a certain way and recall things that are uncomfortable for me to think about. <laughs> so, you know. And of course, this brings us back to Kant again, to the third critique. And that's the other kind of hidden key to yeah, right. Deleuze's account in Difference Repetition, the theory of the faculties. Uh, yeah, that, that thinking isn't a harmonious exercise of the various things that we can do, but it's always discordant. Yes. Productive, discordant but productive. Yes. It's discordant, if you like. Hmm. Yeah. As but, in, you, you mean as in the, well, I suppose it, I mean, it's kind of connected to, to harmony in a way, but you mean as right. in what happens in the in the third critique in relation to the beautiful, the, the way right. they, the, they've not the legislated over yeah, it in the beautiful right. spot. Yeah. There isn't any, any faculty in charge, there's yeah. only one dominant faculty. Yeah. Yeah, and there's the, in Kant, of course, there's the supposition of like a natural harmony. That yes. That thought naturally operates harmoniously. All Deleuze does with respect to that is say, well, you've given us a paradigm for when this doesn't happen <laughs> in a certain respect, you know, the analytic of the sublime, uh, and that this is actually a much better way of grasping the, the, the facultative, facultative relations than the other accounts that you've given us. Anyway, th- these are very technical points that I'm making and maybe not very interesting. No, they're very interesting, um, at least to me. <laughs> so, what, so what does Deleuze do in more more simple sense with the problem idea identity? He 
he not, he argues that we can't explain how something new comes about at all, novelty in a general sense, unless there's something, an element in our situation or our world that troubles the way that it is. Yes. So this is the first thing. Yeah. What is that? Well, a problem. It's a problem. The problem is not of the order of a material object. Uh, and we never encounter it materially, and it subsists even if we think we've solved it. You know, it's, it's, it becomes a part of the world in a new way. So it has a rather peculiar ontological status. Yes. Can we say that there are various possible ways in which the situation or world could be reorganized? Well, we could, but the concept of the possible is very problematic. Uh, and here he's drawing heavily on Bergson's critique yeah. of the possible. Yeah. So really what the, the virtual is an attempt to replace the concept of the possible as a modal category. There exist problems, they have a reality proper to them, the virtual, the virtual problems, uh, and that our relationship to them is the relationship with a problem that overrides or subsists through its solutions. Uh, so it, it doesn't resemble problems as we normally conceive them, as if like math, math problems for six-year-olds. Or philosophy problems for analytic philosophers, the eternal yeah. one, one questions of morality. Yeah. Bang. Yeah. If someone can yeah. tell us the meaning of life, that problem is <laughs> yeah. uh, And so really what we find in Kant is a kind of rejection of that whole way of viewing uh, the relationship with ideas and thought. You know, they don't pose, thought doesn't pose problems that are solvable. It doesn't formulate kind of like discrete propositions that have a true or false answer. No, it encounters ideas that exceed the act of thinking that problematize it and that just means yeah spur it on uh, it, it's a bit like the piece of sand in the oyster that troubles the formation of the inside That's awesome the metaphor. yeah yeah well actually you, you mentioned so this this reminds me of a couple of things one you mentioned that for for Deleuze this uh, relationship to the to the virtual is not uh, it, you know, despite the discussion of problems, we're not just talking about um, human beings at no, the no, level no, of, of, contem- of contemplation. Precisely. And and you you also say, um, and and this is something I wanted to ask you about because this is this is tricky for me. That so on the one hand, because of its virtual nature, we never encounter problems um, directly. And in fact, when you mentioned uh, Maimon before, you said he, he collapses the Kantian faculties of understanding and sensibility. Right? But you insist that um, actually Deleuze, one of the things that Deleuze really dislikes about Maimon, it, it, although he loves Maimon, but but is this is this um, uh, conflating of the distinction between them because he thinks sensation is all important because yeah. it's actually sensation that leads you um, to a to the to the problem, but then yeah, this is this the sort of I'm interested in the architectonic of this all right. how the system so, works. So so you've got you encounter something in sensation it, but and through this you encounter the the problem, and you say at some point the problem will subsist through all its solutions yeah. in a sense. Uh, so it's not it doesn't vanish with its solutions; it subsists and insists. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, so how then? I think I suppose that raises the question: What's how do we encounter the virtual problem through the through the actual sensation yes. on the one hand, and second, the question of how 
of which, uh, yeah, I think will lead you into even more technical domains, but how are, how are problems or anything in the do- domain of the virtual individuated mm. such that you could... Yeah. Well, that's an excellent question, actually. And that takes us back to the mathematics. Right, yes, exactly. The, 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 calculus. the calculus, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the, there are kind of two points of view we can adopt on with respect to that, your first question there. We, if we begin with the idea of the genesis of the faculties, so we, when a baby is born, <laughs> not capable of a variety of things. Yeah. The encounter, all of the, the, the baby's encounters, and even the prenatal situation, uh, are at the level of sensation. So we can say that, if you like, that there, the, the existence is immersed in an intensive field to put it in a, it's a wanky way, but mm. what there is is differences in intensity, which is to say sensations, if you like. Mm-hmm. And the child confronts this kind of shifting terrain all the time. So weatherscape, as I forget who said that, the weatherscape of the young child's existence. It's, it sounds like, I, I don't actually know the quotation, but it sounds all very Kleinian, like yeah, the, the, the really kind of does, description. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Deleuze is, is very fond of Klein's mm. discussions of the, the baby child's life. Um, now, what, what happens is that we encounter sensations and they force us to think, in a nutshell. In the first instance, this means to force us to become capable of thinking. We, we aren't capable of recognising or perceiving identi- individuated objects, but we become so because we're confronted with a kind of diverse visual field or a diverse set of sensations. We become capable of separating one thing from another and so on. Uh, and Deleuze's basic point is that all faculties are created in this way. We encounter something in sensation that engenders in us a new capacity. Mm-hmm. Once we've got that memory or um, language capacity, the faculty of sociality he talks about with respect to Althusser, we're capable then of engaging with this field in a way that's regulated and uh, habituated, if you like. So. Faculties are engendered in response to an encounter in sensation. What precisely do we encounter? Well, in, we encounter a difference in sensation. Hmm. It's, not, it's not just like the world is this beautiful flux with no characteristics. <laughs> it's differentiated. Right. Now, what is it that accounts for the, the structure of intensive reality or what we encounter in sensation? Uh, and this is where the virtual is the answer. Virtual is the differential element in intensity or in sensation that problematizes it from a given points of view, various points of view. What might be a problem for a baby is not a problem for a lizard, is a problem for a bush, like a salt bush or whatever. But problems can generate faculties. That's can, right, can yeah. capacity, And of yeah. course this is true for plants and, and animals right, as well. Right, right. Faculty, of course, just means capacity. Yes, yes. So... Um, so the relationship between the virtual and intensive is the kind of other mm-hmm. difficult thing. Mm-hmm. And this is where the Spinoza thing is so important. The notion of expression. And this is what Badiou really misses. The on the kind of emanative reading, you know, we have the virtual one that emanates reality, like in Plotinus. But for Deleuze, what we find is instead that the virtual has no existence other than its expressions in intensive, that's to say sensation it inheres in intensity or subsists or is expressed through Uh, now what does this mean this is where the calculus comes in as a very useful model of thinking Mm. the virtual if you think about a a point of inflection just a simple curve uh, like a a sine wave 
that there's a point at which the curve changes direction at the top. That point itself is not is doesn't it's not outside of the curve. It belongs fully to the curve. Yes. And yet it's the thing that marks the point of differentiation or change. Yes. Differential calculus allows us to think those points uh, as intrinsic to the curve and yet still thinkable as such on their own terms. Yes. What is the virtual? It is this network of those differential points in every kind of every situation that there is. Insofar as that's a kind of structure. A, that's right. Indeed, yeah. the, the virtual is structure mm. versus mm. difference or repetition. Mm. So what is there at the fundamental level of reality? In a sense, there's just material intensities yes. shifting all the time. But these are individuated or structured. What kind of structure belongs to them? Well, it's not a material structure. It's an ideal structure of a certain kind. Uh, it's a differential structure because we're dealing with changes and uh, individuating things with respect to change. And differential calculus allows us to think all of these singular points as belonging to a kind of differential structure in general. Where the structure is also not transcendent because it just belongs to right. It's and not imposed yeah, from above. Yeah. That's the, the genius of the idea. Mm, it's, it's really extraordinary. You know, ah. Because it's expressed through... What's expressed through doesn't exist outside of the curve, for instance, but also my transition from boredom to anger in emotions as I sit through a long lecture. <laughs> that, that point of transition isn't some separate thing. It's implicit in that shift, even though we can think it as the kind of moment or the, the problematic turning point. This doesn't sound like, uh, and well, in fact, I, I know it's not like this, but I think the presuppositions that often come with a with a word-like expression, which yes. would presume a, a, a sort of a, a, a distinction between the expressed sir and the expressed and a kind of interiority that, yes. that gets expressed. No, this, is, this yeah. is clearly not what is no, being talked no. about. Uh, the idea is mostly drawn from Leibniz, hmm. as Deleuze talks about it. The world is expressed through each monad, but it doesn't exist outside of any monads. There are only monads. You know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Sean Bowden, who works... Here in Melbourne, I think uh, Deacon, working yeah. on this notion of expression a great ah, deal, right. as as being implicit or imminent to the expressed, even if it's not reducible to it. I didn't. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. I'll have to look that. Have to have him on the show one of these one of these days as well. Okay, no, that's that's excellent. I, going back to the the calculus, um, you you mentioned the the point as um you know where we can watch a we can measure something like a, a rate of change in the in the book you talk about the move away from i suppose that yeah. understanding of the characters which we get in 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 high school and that and that arguably is present i i don't know this firsthand i only know from you but in in newton and leibniz in their yeah. in their papers on it but you talk about the shift um in the 19th century with with koshi and, and viastras to um you say Deleuze is very excited about it and actually considers it, even though these are mathematicians are sort of great philosophical um, invention or contribution to philosophy, when these guys start, well, particularly when, when I think you say something like Weierstrass uh, gets away from the notion that a derivative, that uh, sorry, is, is that what you're doing is you're differentiating a function, that it's it's derivative of a function, that's that right, in yeah. fact that in fact that priority gets inverted. Gets inverted that's right, yeah. yeah, can you can you explain what that means for for Deleuze sort of metaphor yes. without necessarily going into the very very <laughs> difficult <laughs> mathematics which may yeah, which, um, yeah, be beyond like both of us, <laughs> at least me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, first the first thing that's notable is that they dispense entirely with the dynamism of the early yes. models of the calculus, as you, as you imply. 
So, yeah, Newton's idea of fluxion, mm. for instance, is totally evacuated. And that's what they wanted to get rid of, the kind of imprecision of this kind of uh, empiricist element in the calculus. Instead, we deal with limits. And, and this is really the birth of the branch of mathematics called analysis, which deals with limits instead of uh, these kind of dynamic movements. <laughs> so we have a static analysis now of, of change and of uh, these singular points, singular and ordinary points on a curve, let's say. Uh, and then, as you say, the, 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 there's an inversion of priority. Instead of thinking that we can derive the, the differential from the curve, which we can, we should start thinking of the differential point, the singular point, as the genetic element of the curve itself. <laughs> so if we have the singular points, we can reconstruct the curve. Uh, we can generate the curve from the singular points and not the other way around. Uh, yeah, and so this is th this is why interest Deleuze so greatly, because then it gives us a means of thinking about uh, structure on its own terms. Uh, mathematical structure of limits or singular points becomes perspicuous on its own terms, uh, and this is precisely what he does when he says, "Well, we can think the virtual," or mm. uh, as he very strongly puts it in a '67 like paper called "The Method Method of Dramatization." We have the means. Uh, forget the verb now. We have something like we have the means to pierce, pierce. We have the means to access the subrepresentational. Well, that's how he puts it. That, which is a very, very strong claim, and one that really I think more people should keep in mind when they read Deleuze. <laughs> we have the means to penetrate. I think it's penetrate the subrepresentational, uh -huh. and it's calculus. It's the means that gives us, we can think structure on its own terms, even if that structure never appears as such, and, and only has, if you like, a, a role in reality uh, as structure, as, as inert, you know, and, uh, as, um, it's in no way productive, if you like. This is incredible. This is a really remarkable and and quite exciting claim. And I I'm wondering because you mentioned '67. Um, you talk about uh, Deleuze at various point, uh, Deleuze's uh, paper on 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 I've forgotten the title actually, but what is structuralism sure, or sure, something yeah. something like that. And I was I was wondering. I mean that project seems to me uh, potentially so exciting for structuralists for what they're looking for, especially because all of these questions about Transcendence and imminence, and what the structure is really, and whether that's some kind of uh, some kind of illusion, etc., and how, how it relates to the the field of individuated differences that it governs, and so forth, is such a is is at the source of so many polemics yeah, and so forth in the in the sixties. But I I don't know of anyone who. Uh, Takes Deleuze up in in this way at the time. Do you know? Is anyone or any of the structures kind of going? Wow! Like, you know, we could think the subrepresentational without the structure actually presenting itself in the. In, uh, I, mean, oh, I don't know. Actually, that's a very good question. But yeah, I'm not very strong in the history of ideas in this respect. No, no. I, I mean, I'm not. I, I just. I. I don't know. It's just. It's just making me think about how. I'd just love to present this notion to a bunch of Althusserians sure. or something and see what they did with it. You well, know? I mean, when, when Deleuze talks about Althusser in this kind of context, he basically says, Althusser is already doing what I'm talking about. Yeah, right, right. Which is his, it's a very common move that Deleuze makes. Uh, yeah, the piece that you refer to, uh, how, how do we recognize structuralism? That's the one, yeah. Very odd, odd title. Mm. Um, but yeah, he, he says structuralism has these 
six or eight, I can't recall, um, major theses, and they're shared by all these different thinkers. And you read them, and they're all just descriptions of Deleuze's <laughs> position, right? And some of them are big things that you, you'd find it very hard to see Lacan or Saussure yeah. buying into. Yeah. Uh, singular point, differential structure. The first one is the identifying the symbolic order as a register all of its own, insubordinate in to the imaginary or the real. And that's just a, a very kind of veiled way of him saying, well, we can identify the virtual as such on its own terms and uh, not have to subordinate it to the, the real of material change. We can think about them separately. Yes, without confusing the virtual for, for the possible, Precisely. without making it transcendent, while, yeah. while acknowledging it as real, etc. Yeah, I, okay, I mean, this, this I mean, huh. there's actually, I, I, I'd love to ask you more about this, this sort of stuff, but I, I just, being aware of, of, of time, I, I want to change tack slightly. So we've been talking about these kind of, um, I suppose, metaphysical questions. And um, Deleuze, like Badiou, maybe another thing, Badiou certainly um, sees them as having an, in common, which I think, and as do the speculative realists, which I think can't be disputed, is the idea that they're not troubled by the problematic of the of the end of metaphysics sure. and, and this sort of stuff. But I, I feel... Because we've been talking about things like the the image of thought and mm. and 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 breaking apart the image of thought and and the way problems in Deleuze's sense, you know, cannot be identified with the way I suppose even philosophy departments like to talk about like to talk about problems where they usually yeah. like come you know I mean we would have both been anyone who's been a philosophy department you know, an undergraduate and you're, you're kind of invited to you know join in the dispute between I, I, I don't know nominalist and realist or <laughs> Platonist and Aristotelian and everything exists and 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 that actually makes me want to ask you a question just because I, I know some listeners will be thinking about this especially whenever anyone mentions anything metaphysically I think a lot of people go ah 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 but this is all very this is all very abstract right? yeah. this word this word that <laughs> annoys me very greatly as a Hegelian but, but putting, putting that aside this is all very abstract and they'll say what about ethics and, and politics and now in asking you about this I want to frame it with I have a sense that for you as for Adolf, there's a there's a suspicion about both of these terms. I know you've recently written a controversial paper on why there is no politics yeah. in, in Deleuze. But I think, yeah, that writing about this is not that, that your suspicion doesn't come from, from you know, obviously uh, some sort of nihilistic indifference to, you know, what's happening in the world or bad things that are happening. But maybe the suspicion... And I think I think you'd be right in this. Although it took me a long time to realize this, and actually, I uh, yeah, part of my education on this to to some of your work, although also from my own experiences. But just just this sense that okay, you start off saying okay, something is bad in the world, right? Something has a problem. You want to do something about it. So you go into ethics and politics, and then you think no, but the problem is the way you're conceiving of the problem. The, the problem is precisely that. Yeah. And, and when we talk about the estrangement that philosophy produces, I think there's the, you know, you start off, you want to communicate, you want to sort of sell yourself to others. It's like, no, I'm doing some incredibly important thing that, you know, once my book is finished, um, the revolution will occur and, <laughs> and yeah. justice will be served on, on earth and so forth. But, you, but more and more as you actually pursue the problem, the way everyone talks about the problem becomes banal, becomes uh, what is stopping you from from doing anything so i wanted to ask you about how you think of let's start with with ethics and mm. uh, deleuze's and deleuze's ethics um as something that i think is both 
present in Deleuze, an, an ethical dimension, um, and I think it's present in your work on, on Deleuze, uh, concerns about ethics in a very, very broad sense that c- comes out in your, aphoris- in your aphorisms and so forth, but also with this distaste for the, for the kind of banality of, of, of ethics, of ethics kind of um, dragging thought down and re-territorializing it on a bunch of platitudes or something like yeah. that. But I feel this is very... Yeah, this is central to you, this this kind of immense distaste for this kind of thing, but also not being actually indifferent, because how can you be to, sure. to questions of life yes, and yes. living and death and and love and all the rest of it? Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, Deleuze often when he reflects on ethics explicitly, I mean, and I'm tempted to say all the time, mm. it, it, mm. it's within the framework of the Nietzschean opposition really, between morality and ethics. Right. Between good and evil versus good and bad. Uh, Deleuze, yeah, he thinks that morality, obviously, is a system that invokes some sort of tra- transcendence and, and a system of judgment mm. that is deployed by it. What is ethics in Deleuze? In the broader sense, it's uh, it's this Nietzschean Spinozan element of creating increasing power of action mm-hmm. this is what, what what's ethical or good in the ethical sense here is becoming capable of more yes thinking more doing more feeling more uh, and in the books of capitalism schizophrenia we get the sense that this means connecting more yes and traversing across boundaries taking a line of flight not not without its dangers but it's an experimental process where one aims to Go beyond the categories of morality, what's acceptable or good and good and evil, what's wrong from a certain social point of view, and to uh, express life more fully. Yes, like yes. That said, there is another strain in Deleuze's work, and it's the one that increasingly, uh, around ethics, increasingly I feel sympathy for, or, or that's the wrong word, I, I feel close to mm. Uh, and it's the, it's, it's the kind of ethical position we find in logic of sense, right? which includes these just amazing formulations. One of them is um, better death than the life than the health we are given. <laughs> better death than the health we are given, yeah. which is the sort of the same point, but told, put very strongly in the mm, negative, mm. right. And there, I mean, the, the general idea here is be, be worthy of the events that happen to you. That's what constitutes ethics. Be worthy of the events that happen to you. Presumably, if you are, then you will flourish in the way, in a sort of Spinoza sense. Um, but the events that can happen to you can also be events that diminish you, or indeed, death is an event. That's yes. That's important one in the logic of sense. Mentioned Busset's uh, yeah, wound right. and that's stuff right. yeah. yeah, learn to embody the wounds that, that pre-existed you, that you were born into. Beautiful and t- utterly terrifying. Oh, <laughs> yeah, like, really, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so it's, it's not a... It is a very sort of simple thing to frame. Mm. You, know, you have two options. One is to resent what happens to you, and the mm. other is to embrace it and make it part of who you are. Which is not advocating, though it seems like a kind of stoic, tranquil, like, or even, no, or no, worse, no, you know, new agey kind of like everything has a reason, like accept, go with no. the fight. It's, it's strangely, it's not no, no, anything to do right. with that, is yeah, it? Which yeah. is weird because, you know, the, very much the logic of sense is framed within stoic, stoic yeah. terms. Yeah. Um, so be yeah be do not fail to be worthy of the events that are to happen to you uh, and and yeah there, it's not wrong to call this tragic I don't think mm. as a result it doesn't have to embrace that kind of positive stoic framework 
you know, where, yeah, there's the natural world and it just unfolds how it unfolds, and, you know. Yeah, there's no element of theodicy. That's right, there, that's yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So it, even, to, even in death, there can be a, a kind of affirmation, and even though, as Blanchard was says and Deleuze quotes this you know we can't we're not there when we die yes, yes. we literally never die <laughs> yes I never yes death is the impossibility of dying right, that's <laughs> right yeah, yeah yeah but the yeah the, the event of another person for instance can can be expressed in the same way there is a as something that's the object of resentment or as something that we learn to embody and, and create on the basis of change on the basis of yeah. um and I feel I feel very close to that I, if we were to go one step further, I would mm. say that, that, yeah, in saying that there's no politics in Deleuze, I, I mean to say that there isn't any, there's no way to extrapolate any normative framework. Yes. He's hostiles with this. And every time he uses the word politics, it's a descriptive word for the social. Yes. For the most part. So what is there in Deleuze's most political text? There's an ethics, and the ethics is fundamentally Nietzschean and Spinozan. Yes. Uh, they attack and destroy anything that's against life and, and flourish and affirm. But increasingly I feel that there, even underneath these things in Deleuze, there is a kind of naturalism, right? mm-hmm. a transcendental naturalism, as mm-hmm. you could call it, which has this affirmative, joyous aspect, but it's not... It, it's not nothing, as we were saying earlier, that can be divorced from the processes of nature, to mm-hmm. put it in a crude sense. And that, even in, and this is the Leibnizian note in Deleuze, it's not a theodicy precisely, but there's something, something parallel. You know, even in dying and suffering and resenting, we we're still, from another point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. This is the crazy chapter in um, in this book on Leibniz called "The Fold," where he talks about how even even the damned uh, contribute to the the, happiness, the the symphony of of the bass notes. You know, yeah, you know, even those crying out in hatred of God form a part of this beautiful whole. Which sounds like exactly what Nietzsche critiques in the in the genealogy Uh, of relationship. Yeah, yeah. In, In this sense, Nietzsche is. Though, though you wouldn't notice it, you know, closer to a kind of moralistic take than, than Leibniz is. You know? Yes. Uh, the- Nietzsche, <laughs> Nietzsche's saying, it isn't, think about the amount of suffering that we had to go through to get to this point. Where yes. We can promise and remember. And yeah, yeah. And Leibniz is saying, yeah, even if you, your monad is boiled down to one single affect, and that's just hatred of God, <laughs> you're still like expressing the harmonious whole, you know. There is something kind of gorgeous about, and I think we—I think that's a very important thing to understand with affirmation. Something uh, that, that I got to for for work is just, it, but also in relation to transcendental illusion. It seems to me that very often when people read Deleuze, and they see the the Spinozist Nietzschean um, critiques of morality, as in what you do is you sort of think, you, you okay, so what we've got to do is throw out, in a sense, a morality that we don't have, like a, 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 an imagined sort of straw man morality of our grandparents or of Christian fundamentalists, assuming we're not them and, and, and so forth, but that the normative uh, remains, right? You once said to me something like I was asking you about the sentence 
um, you know, and from Spinoza's letters, the Deleuze likes, we do not even know what a body can do. And I said, you know, I think people read that. It's like, well, you could read that as an affirmation of, of, you know, athleticism or or something like that. And it doesn't preclude that, like, because indeed amazing things are done by athletes and so forth. But you also said to me, but, but it also includes... Balzac drinking 20 cups of coffee a day and then lying in an ice bath for an hour and sleeping with his mistress and writing for 13 hours and doing insane uh, yeah so uh, that's why like yeah an affirmation would not this affirmation of life does not include uh, uh, does not exclude say say complaint like in its glorious I'm thinking there's, there's that an essay in Essays uh, clinical and, yeah. and critical about that on on, right. on kind of the, the uh, or it does not include uh, does not exclude yeah it it, it hmm. it's it's like the readers of Deleuze on ethics seem more um, uh, normative or always fall into a sort of basic yes. kind of normativity uh, that he rejects agree, yeah yeah there's, a, yeah, there's this implicit moralism yeah you get it even at, at Deleuze scholar, so-called scholarly conferences right. where the people in question time will get up and say you shouldn't. Yeah. You shouldn't say that Deleuze has hard and fast distinctions. Because... Yeah, which is, uh, first of all, it's clearly wrong. Yeah, I mean, like, he yeah, because he obviously does. It's like, you're, you're not, you know, what is Deleuze? The, the wisdom that has been passed down from the transcendent Deleuze <laughs> tells us that we have to, you know, affirm becoming... Oh, and right. flux and thus. Ah, so concepts repressive. That that's one, right. that yeah, one. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, and that's why I think that, the, um, that the, another essay in the Essays Critical and Clinical Collection that I have done with judgment yes, yes. is a very important essay that people need to properly grasp, mm. you know, it, it, because, yeah, the, there are this kind of quasi, quasi Nietzschean, quasi Spinoza, via Deleuze thing, it's a, it's, it's a blight and it's very widespread, it's kind of crypto moralism. Mm. You know. Disguised as an immoralism That's or an right. amoralism. Disguised yeah. as, you know, like flux and enjoy everything. Yeah. Don't, whatever you do, <laughs> say that Deleuze has a concept of being. You know, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, which is perhaps, I mean, again, one of the interesting things about Badiou's Deleuze, because you do think yeah. Badiou is wrong about everything, but a lot of the negative reactions to that, to Badiou's book, I think, are of a kind you couldn't possibly be sympathetic to because no. they're precisely how dare he treat Deleuze exactly, as yeah. having concepts That's when right, we yeah. should when we should just you know like he's just the a sort of crappy French Blake of, of you know <laughs> something like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. one of his French commentators uh, reviewers of Badger's book called it yeah like a funeral dirge instead of instead of a he treats no, he says he treats Deleuze's philosophy instead of it being a hymn to life, it's like a funeral dirge, hmm. which is a very stupid, yes, and morally freighted way of yes. having a dislike for a book. You know. Yes, and th- and mistakes affirmation for just these moments at this kind of uh, Nietzsche's ass like yay a saying right? right like yeah, yeah. it's yeah, only yeah. only when you're like yeah everything's awesome is yeah. there is there affirmation or exactly something? yeah. yeah. And so what about uh, the, the politics? Tell me about this paper, on yeah. this controversial paper. On well, look, politics. I mean, it's the, it's the beginnings of, a, of notes for a book, really. A, right. A little book. Uh, simply, I, I want to do a very boring textual analysis of all of Deleuze's work. Whenever he uses the word politics, what's really at stake here? Uh, and my thesis is just that there isn't any uh, specific content to the word. 
that isn't already what he means by social or dynamism or becoming. Yes. You know, th- these are the two uh, kind of things that he's getting at when he invokes politics. For instance, when, he, when they say in Thousand Plateaus, for politics precedes being. Mm. A very strange, peculiar thing to say. Hard to know what it means. But and it sounds, I mean, in the wrong context, sounds nonsensical, oh, sounds right? In fact, like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But the point is simply that, yeah, what do, becoming precedes being. Right. You know, the, the, and if there's a political activity, it's one that encourages uh, a breaking up or a negotiation with fixed structures and engendering change and so on. Uh, but that doesn't mean it has to be a human being, you know, that does this. It's lobsters do this, you know, uh, architectonic plate shift. So in this sense, it, it, there is a geological element to the point as well, you know, at, at this kind of level of material reality, politics precedes being, in the sense that there isn't any fixed fundamental state of affairs that holds across time and place. Mm-hmm. So how does this relate then to, I suppose, what people normally call politics yeah. or, or the or the question? I mean, I think, for example, I'm thinking of criticisms of Deleuze from someone like um, uh, Peter Horwood, who I, I know you disagree with on this one, but, but who, who run, I, I don't know, broadly, uh, let's say, let's say Sartrean or humanist and say, and say, Deleuze is bad because he's not talking at the level of, you know, for, for, for political reasons, we need to talk about, you know, uh, human beings and agency and will and, 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 and collectives and, uh, and how, uh, you know, how a collective subject is, is maintained across time. And I, I think, uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to um, uh, prejudge your answer to that too much. Just tell me, what, what do you think of, the, of, of these kind of things? There, there is a, I think, it, first of all, Hallward's critiques of, Deleuze, and in general, the kind of like left critiques of Deleuze mm. are, are wrong, mm. uh, but but they're encouraged and they're fed by this misunderstanding of what Deleuze means when he uses the word politics uh, as a kind of like yeah celebratory communitarianism. Right, right. You could, you'd say most people take from it. Uh, I'm, but I'm sympathetic in one respect, which is that if you're going to use the word, I think that its range maybe ought to be restricted to. What we normally understand by yes, that makes Even sense to me. Yeah, completely trite in some sure, respects. sure. So there, there are a couple of things here. One is that we Deleuze may inspire us, but there's no Deleuzean doctrine mm. in politics or program, mm. political program that we can find there. I don't think. Uh, and the other is that yeah, beyond beyond what Deleuze says using the word politics, there isn't any. Let me give you an anecdote that I think summarises this Please. quite well. Yeah, it's it's uh, Foucault. And Foucault's up in a, a Swiss chalet somewhere taking some time off. Coterie of adoring fans. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to talk to him and say, look, um, it's just after Anti-Oedipus has come out. Yeah. Listen, can we, um, can we talk my brother's, uh, he's not well, he's going to go and see a psych- psychologist, a psychotherapist of some time. Do you think he should see a schizoanalyst? <laughs> and Foucault starts... Burst <laughs> when he stops, up, stops laughing and he says, no, I'm sure a Freudian is <laughs> The point is that there, there's no such thing as a schizoanalyst. Right. You know, it, it's not an occupation or theory, <laughs> like a therapeutic position. Uh-huh, so, uh-huh. Uh, instead, it's the, it's the way that reality is and unfolds. It's yeah. a name for becoming, if you like. So I'm sympathetic with this because it, there's a sense in which 
the red, proper register of politics is the realm of subjects and states yeah. and rights and laws as they're constituted. Yes. There's a, and we want to change these things, mm-hmm. of course. But there's a certain level of change in reality that we're not we're not capable of modifying. You know, like things change all the time in nature. Obviously, we're not master of this. No. So let, let's be clear when we're talking about politics. We're talking about rather circumscribed domain. I think mm. this this is what I think follows from the way Deleuze uses politics and the way that he doesn't use it. Uh, I maybe take it a bit further than he might. Mm. emphasizing this but uh, and, and I suppose it also reflects my the naturalism I may have caught from Deleuze right <laughs> yeah I, I think there are, there are two interesting things going on here so one um, I think yeah so someone like a, a Howard who'd make this make would make a critique of Deleuze and say yeah like not useful for, for political purposes because he's like talking at the wrong level like the, uh, uh, in terms of talking about um, genesis and subjectivization and the virtual and problems and so forth across like like univocal being and so forth now it seems to me that, that you're saying like on the one hand yeah, I mean, that's right. Like, we can, we should have a, a, you know, politics is obviously not just about what's happening with the, the way, um, you know, plants contract sunlight and so forth. It would be, it would be silly to say that. But on the other hand, I think you might reject an implication. And I, I, I mean, instinctively, I think rightly that, that is, in present in some of these critiques, which is coming back to the image of thought, a certain idea of the benevolence of of philosophy, or that or that if thinking is appropriately, say, directed to a political object, then and, and this you know this seems to me to be behind things like um, why applied ethics is so well funded and yeah, so forth. This this weird assumption that that if uh, you take goodwill and the benevolent thinker to an important topic, the problems uh, that have arisen in that topic will be resolved That's by right. doing so. And yeah. and you do not think this at no. all, right? Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, indeed. So, yeah, there is, a, there is, if you like, an element of Deleuze, which you can see is very useful in thinking about political mm. reality and political action, which is the, the, the critical realisation of transcendental illusion or the yes. dogmatic image of thought, the way that it's in play all the time and tends to orient and organise thinking. Uh, and it, in this way, you can sort of see that the philosophical critiques of uh, colonialism and identitarianism, these are very well motivated yes. and important. Uh, but we don't need Deleuze for this, and Deleuze really doesn't say anything like about that no. specifically no. at all. And beyond Deleuze, I mean, the, 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 another way to frame this whole thing is to say that there are a large number of theorists, so-called, who advance political accounts or talk about politics in terms of, in very metaphysical, very abstract in the regular sense terms, like, you know, let's have a politics of the impossible. Right. Um, that, that's the one that I find the most infuriating <laughs> because, again... Francois Chatelet once said, you know, that historical materialism doesn't tell us about the, you know, the, the kind of changing in historical strata and stuff. It tells us that people die because they don't have enough to eat. Yes. Right? And that's got to be remembered front and center in politics. And that's Hell yes. the lesson of Marx, right? I, I agree. You know, 
even if I disagree with his take on philosophy, the, the orientation of politics must be this, mm. not some sort of invocation of like impossible democracies and you know, like, <laughs> or the new metaphysics that would be appropriate right, to politics, which would give us politics or something right. like that. As if yeah, that's, as if that that's the direction of mm. the kind of yeah. And look, and to be frank, it's, it's, there's a chance that this is all a rather pessimistic way of framing the philosophy-politics relationship. That's very, <laughs> it comes from my general approach to the world. But you know, <laughs> how, how so? Sorry, sorry. What, what do you mean by that last one? If well, you if well, you can remember, you know, I'm a pessimist. In right. A, in a nutshell. Right. But again, like as you said much earlier, you know that the. the this pessimism is not uh, doesn't exclude joy in the Spinoza sense whatsoever. No. The, uh... And and I would reject. I mean, I'm not convinced. I mean, another reason I think that that's a, not a problem is I'm not convinced that either good thought or or political achievements or artistic achievements yeah. or anything. Um, was predicated on the presence of, of subjective optimism. Right. Like this is this is a ridiculous <laughs> illusion. Also, this brings me. I mean, bringing to a conclusion. I wish I had more time to, to talk to you about this. But I mean, you're. I mean, we've talked a lot about Deleuze, and Deleuze is very important to you as as your um, publication and especially forthcoming publication list um, suggests, and and as our discussion has suggested. But I also feel. That while Deleuze is, is really central to you, he's, I don't want to use the word like method, it's, it's too crass, but in a sense that he has given you tools to think, that you are not simply a Deleuzean, that you're not really that interested, I mean, it seems, in being a Deleuze exegete or so, and I know you respect other you know, Deleuzeans in this regard, but it's brought you to some places that I think are unusual um, for uh, a Deleuze scholar in terms of conventional academic trajectory, such as writing yeah. a book on abstract market theory, and now a, another project on on finance or on something money. like that, yeah, and and right. on money, and a book on Hal Hartley. Yeah. I mean, without having time to go through <laughs> these either any of these in exhaustive detail, can to talk a bit about how you came to these projects and what they are for you, and yes. what your thinking is that in relation to, to these well, things. Well, the money book is easiest to explain. It does follow on from the market book, right? The two questions that the market book doesn't really address are the nature of the banking system. Mm. Sounds like a rather empirical question, but I think. <laughs> uh, and the other is the nature of money. Right. Uh, and, and particularly today, I mean, there are three facts about the contemporary situation. One is that orthodox economics now and always has denigrated money. It doesn't mean anything. There's no theory of money in mainstream economics. Right. It's not relevant. Right. Second is that the history of philosophy, despite touching on the topic of money, very rarely includes any proper treatment of the topic of money. And really the exemplars or the exceptions are in empiricist work, and Locke and Hume, primarily. And Zimmel, someone like Zimmel, well, who's Zimmel, an outlier, yeah, like not Zimmel, really in the that's a That's an interesting marginal case, yeah. being a book of sociology. Yes, yes, that's true, part. that's true. Uh, yeah. And the third thing is just the advent of new, these new forms of digital currency. Right. Uh, like Bitcoin, for instance, which actually I do think are, are new forms of money because they excise or radically modify the role of the third party. What We used to need a state or a bank to play the role of an intermediary. With Bitcoin and related forms of currency, you don't need a third party anymore. It's been replaced by a, 
like an impersonal ledger, like a web page, effectively. So this is a very interesting shift, I think, mm. uh, and it puts in, into question a number of, of the kind of presuppositions about how money works on every from every point of view. So that's, that's kind of topical, if you like. Oh yeah, so I'm, I'm very interested in that. Uh, the market book, yeah. Well, that was a <laughs> there, there was a, let's say a material materialist dimension. I, I got a job basically. Right. And the job was to think about the market philosophically, uh, and it was a, a very interesting experience um, being confronted with a problem that I had no handhold at all on, and had to develop some sort of conceptual armature to deal with. Yeah, as you say, I mean, many things can be said about this, but it would take a long time to go through them. Uh, the book is unlike any anything else I've ever seen, actually. And I think anyone, and I think I worry. I, I told you when you were writing, I worry for its reception in oh, this yeah. regard, precisely because I mean, not sort of patron, but but in a no, kind no. of I feel you know it may be some decades hence it may open a new field but i don't think anyone has ever asked the question you know what is a market at with the kind of metaphysical um scrutiny or with the with the tools that you with bring tools, to it Foucault's yeah. archaeology of knowledge may seem on the meaningless sign and yeah. and so uh, how, how did you i mean in a the delusion way that we did these did these tools just come up in the in the process of pursuing the problem how did you pretty much uh, describe it i mean it, writing it had two uh, two kind of impressions i got while i was writing one was the sense of having links in a chain that i needed further links for i could imagine the whole book the argument of the book which is really just one argument one line mm, argument. Mm. Okay. which which chains and which links were missing and the other was the sense of it being very obscure and then coming to clarity yes right? as i read more things from different angles and uh, yeah, in a certain sense, the book is, uh, in, uh, it's, it's predominantly about explaining the resources for formulating the philosophy of the market. And once you have the resources, then you can say, well, look, in, in one paragraph, look, here, here are the consequences for what we've been talking about, you know, price or uh, the writing of price. But it was... Um, it, it had all of the terror and the exhilaration of doing something when you didn't know what you were doing and yes. it was working out. <laughs> like the opposite of Thomas and Louise, you know. <laughs> uh, the lesson would be being like in relation to patriarchy, like like isn't the, the conventional reading of that film because because right, it can right. work out for dudes, like That's it could true, be an yeah. odyssey or something, something like yeah, someone yeah. would throw that reading. At you Actually, it's a lot, a lot, it was a lot like Thomas and Louise. <laughs> you I went. finished it and then I went over the cliff. Like, <laughs> well, the book did. You know, it fell still. Still born from the press. The press right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, you're right. It, it's yet to find an audience, but uh, I, I was upset about it. It's not, of course, everybody is if their work, especially work that's difficult and obscure. Indeed. And seems important. And required you to to learn right. completely new paradigm like economics yeah. and so forth, finance and, yes. Yeah, but uh, in another way, I feel like I, I did the thing that I could do. Mm. You know, that, that's, that's all I can do. I'm a philosopher. I try to work on concepts, which is to say I try to be a philosopher. Yes. Uh, and then when that's done, um, 
it, it's not for me to say how, how to apply it or engage with it. It's no, certainly not. Take it up and do with it what, what they need it to do. You know. Yeah. But all of that, that brings me to the Hartley book, which is going to have even less of an audience, I imagine. Really? <laughs> Hartley, he's not a particularly well-loved director, and, but he's the first filmmaker that, whose films made me think about cinema as a mm-hmm. medium and, and try to understand what's going on in his films. And I think he... he, he I mean, the, the central argument of the book is that he develops a rather unique form of what I'll call formalist realism. And these are normally considered to be the two poles, if you like, of cinema realism, where the content and accuracy, you know, the idea of verite is key. And the other where the kind of formal elements of the cinema making film art central. Mm. Uh, technological elements, but also you know, stylistic elements. And yes. Stuff, you know. And all films, in a way, fall somewhere between these two poles. Yes. What, what Hartley does, though, is synthesise the two poles, I think. He, the form, to use quite loaded technical terms, the form, uh, the form of expression, the form of uh, his films, if you like, and the way they play human bodies out and the way they're organised, is the same as the form of content, same as the narrative and, if you like, uh, personological elements of the film. So the, the, the two levels are uh, isomorphic, if you like. Which, <laughs> without context, sounds rather odd and empty. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But no, no, no. The, yeah. So I just, I just, I want to write about this director whose work is in, has struck me mm. so, so very much. Yeah. What struck, what struck here about his, his the oddness. Mm. The oddness is mm. the first thing you notice, and and if you read reviews of his films now, people just go on about it. <laughs> it's like really idiosyncratic. Unnatural movements of actors, unnatural delivery of lines, really unbelievable setups or storylines. Um, and yet, he doesn't, they, the critics don't let him off the hook by in the way they would a more a formalist direct they're, no. they're not kind of going oh but he's no, like no, a no. he's a Brasson he's a he's a Tarkovsky yeah, it's yeah. all about the way he frames shots or something like Precisely, that no, yeah. no. no, no. I mean, he's, he's basically considered an indie American director yeah, and yeah. from the 80s yeah. so he's treated like a kind of failed Jim Jarmusch <laughs> yeah. uh, even though he's still making films um, yeah and uh, it just seems it boggles my mind that, that, that all of these to start with all the formal elements of his films are totally overlooked hmm. you know? The unusual cutting and framing, the un- not not the unnatural acting which everybody talks about, but the the role that or the place that it has in the constitution of his film. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I could go on. There's all these very unusual elements. So reintroduction of intro- introduction of digital film and his way of uh, the way it reveals the meaning of his earlier films in a certain way. That's it. I haven't seen, because I haven't seen anything of his yeah. since then. I, I haven't seen this. This the, He was still shooting on film. Like, that's so, right. I mean, yeah. he still does, he oscillates a bit, but if you watch um, The Girl from Monday or um, The Book of Life. Oh, actually, that was the last one I've seen, and that is on digital. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He, he yeah. engages in like a slowing down the frames a mm. great deal and shifting the speed of the slowing down. It's as though he's trying to move backwards through the history of cinematography to the photographic image. Wow. And then if you look at the organisation of his films, fundamentally I think they're organised around tableaus, like stills, from which are like the genetic instance from which the rest of the film is 
created, which sort of slopes towards uh, like um, a set. Uh, I've forgotten the word now. It's been a little while since I looked. No, the moment that that uh, that mark in musical notation, which says to hold on this point for a certain period of time. Oh, I th- like yeah, yeah, like the dot. That's the rest. That, yeah, that's yeah. like for. So I can't. Say, I don't remember what it's called. It doesn't say yeah. stay here forever. It just yeah. says for a certain period. Mm. Then that's the kind of like the emblem of his films, effectively. That that mark. That those those images or. Um, tableau shots are uh, the crucial things and everything leads up to them and moves away from them it's organised by their presence if you like insofar as you're I mean obviously a, a philosopher like and, and one inspired by Deleuze when you approach Hartley okay you, you do so because you're struck by him because there's an encounter but will will this be a book of philosophy in the way yeah. Deleuze has of his, his cinema books or, do you, or is it more about film than that would or more about no. Hartley cinema than that would suggest it, it's, it's more about Hartley cinema but yeah. I guess in one way, it's very much what Deleuze does. Which yeah. is the, it's not like what I'm going to say is applicable to anything else necessarily. Right, right. I mean, it's about Hartley's film. Yes, yes. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, my secret inspiration, and, and really more than that, than my consolation when I'm afraid of writing what I'm going to write, just because of the, the kind of analysis, the detail that I want to go into, is, is Foucault's lovely lectures on Manet. I don't know them. Hmm. Oh, it's, hmm. it's a little book of these lectures on Manet. And hmm. just the detail with which he analyzes the painting and, and the way his attention shifts. And, hmm. uh, I read that and I feel more confident in treating these things that some people might think of as totally marginal and irrelevant as important. Yes. Like, like all proper writing, there's a degree of courage involved. Oh, definitely. I mean, anyone who's written or is writing a PhD knows that an immense amount of courage is required to uh, try and speak in your own voice. Uh, And that, yeah, that never goes away, I don't think. No, no. And about things that people don't care about. And and by definition, it's going to be things that people don't care about, even even if you... (laughs) Yeah. So, mm. So there are... Do you think there are new... Will... Concepts come out of the book. Are there things that you think Hartley does in his cinema that um, have implications for the way cinema is thought about, or what cinema can show? Or yeah, <laughs> I'm tempted to say no. But mm. Other than, uh, I mean, uh, there's a critique of the idea of realism at the start of the book, which maybe, which I think is a, it's a, it's a ultimately a paradoxical, contradicting concept because. The evacuation of form is impossible, obviously. So that limit of cinema is a rather peculiar, paradoxical object. Yeah. The idea of accuracy or truth. Uh, and then the, the last chapter in the book is about what I, I want to call the image of the cinema, which I feel like is in, in very clearly embedded in Hartley's films. You, you can see implicitly how he understands the role and the capacities of cinematic images. Hmm. And, and there's, so the last part of the book is a meditation on what we might, whether we could find these in other sim, uh, other filmmakers, you know, the image of the cinema itself, the image of the capacity of the cinema. What do you think? I, I mean, mean I, don't, brief... I really don't know. Okay, okay. It, it's so striking in Hartley, and mm. it's one of the most beautiful shots. It's the final sequence in No Such Thing plays this out 
this very beautiful, uh, but also tragic relationship between selfhood and image. Yes. Well, I can't think of a more, I mean, that would seem a very um, pressing contemporary theme. Yes. I'm not so sure. I, I suspect this book will find an audience, especially because I think maybe the differences with um, this book and the market book is and maybe and, and problematically in a, in a bad sense. I think one of the, the scary things about reception to your book is that people in both economics and philosophy, the two possible audiences for that book, are... Uh, already think they know what the market is about, yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. on asking the questions. Yes. Whereas I think my sense is, and maybe this is just, uh, this is just the, the limited perspe- my limited perspective, but is that one of the things that's maybe interesting about cinema studies, film studies, is that they, or at least some of them seem to me, have, have a real um, self-consciousness about their lack of a, a, what uh, I suppose mm. Aristotle would call it an arcade. Like, like what what is actually this discipline about? What is it yes. doing in a world where there are you know endless film blogs and reviews yeah, and so yeah, forth? Yeah. What is the study of cinema? What are its objects? What are its procedures and so forth? So I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I mean, in the way that it, in a way it surprises me that film people read Deleuze's yeah, books yeah, on cinema. Sure. Not not because I mean not because they're not great, but because they're very very strange yeah. from a perspective of yeah, yeah yeah yeah. And 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 yeah, they found a. They found an audience, sure, and perhaps sure. also for how hard. All right, um, Dr. Rove, um, it's been a long but um, delightful conversation. I'm really, really honoured that you came. I'm sorry we uh, we skirted over a lot of material. There's so much more I want to ask you. I hope you come back um, uh, for a sequel. I, I'm starting sure. to suggest this. There will be a, a second series of the podcast at some point, and I, I, I really hope you uh, uh, join me uh, once again. But um, uh, for the moment... Um, if uh, are there any, uh, I, I suppose I should give you this opportunity, um, just because I, I I'm a great you know sufferer of esprit de scalio moments. Are you having? Are you ha- is there any? Are there any topics that you feel? Oh my god, I can't believe Brian didn't broach that, or I, oh, I'm no. desperate to say <laughs> something. No, I, no. Dawes says you know that philosophy has a horror of conversation. Yes. And the thing that I, I like about this format is that there, it's a, it's more of an interrogation. <laughs> I appreciate that. And so, like, as in all good interrogations, I talk when I'm told to talk. So. <laughs> I love it. I was actually guilty. That's that's a wonderful note, then, because I was actually thinking, yes, I'm having John Rofe on here. This will be wonderful. But I am aware, John hates as a good philosopher and a good Deleuzean <laughs> conversation and therefore and, and in its in its vacuity and its in its illusion of of um I, I, I don't know that everything that everything can be brought out and and you know in a in a chat and thinking is done at this this is conversation is not the space of thinking no, we no. both we both agree about that but but um thank you for giving us a a, a glimpse into where the real thinking goes on <laughs> thank you very much thank John you <laughs>